Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Sophia. And I'm Courtney. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're talking about heartbreaks and breakups. We'll take a look at the careers of rom-com regulars Nick Hornby and John Cusack. And we'll break out some top five lists as we discuss the world of music nerds and record collectors as seen in the 2000 cult classic High Fidelity. Sophia. Hey, Jen. How's it going? It's going all right. I'm really excited to do the movie we're doing today. It's um, a departure from the wedding series, and it doesn't really have anything to do with the time travel series, but we have lucked into a pretty great guest this week. Yes, we have. I'm very (laughs) excited. Yeah. And this week's movie was actually selected by our guest, the multi-talented Courtney E. Smith. She's worked extensively as a journalist. She's the author of the 2011 book Record Collecting for Girls, and she's currently the editor of Eater Dallas. Courtney is also a podcaster. She's the host and writer of the podcast Songs in the Key of Death, a podcast about murder ballads and the crimes that inspired them. And she's currently working on a new podcast about indie rock in the early 2000s, a subject she is very familiar with since she worked in music programming at MTV during those years. So Courtney, welcome to Every Rom-Com. We're very excited to have you on the show today. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And we came across you a little bit because you were on Twitter sort of daring people to have, I believe, more (laughs) women on their their music podcasts in particular. That's right. There's a real glut of music podcasts that are a couple of dudes talking to each other about music, all made by dudes. And um, my challenge was, please have a woman on to talk about music. Please break it up. Oh, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I tend to seek out podcasts where I feel like there is more women represented on that podcast, because it's the same with film podcasting too. That's actually one of the reasons I decided to start this podcast because I'd listen to a film podcast with four guys talking about how a romantic comedy was stupid or something or, or not talking about them at all. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I have, we have a couple questions for you. I mean, we could ask you so many questions and please check out Courtney's um, bio that will be in our show notes too. Cause we're only going to be able to scratch the surface here, but you started your career working at MTV And in your book, Record Collecting for Girls, you talk about how you helped promote some very prominent acts like Death Cab for Cutie, who I love, by the way, The Shins, Vampire Weekend, and others. But I wanted to know, when did you actually become a music nerd? Like, were you always approaching music as kind of a more sophisticated listener? Or were you like me and you had like a Milli Vanilli tape in middle school? (laughs) Well, I grew up in a house with parents that loved music a lot and played me a lot of stuff. And I have these memories of making mixtapes for my parents' record collection. And I mean, actual record collection. Um, And so I always liked it a lot. And I found it to be a great, like, method of expression in a certain way, Um, a great way to tap into my own feelings when I found them as a child too big or too, you know, difficult to name. I could put on music and kind of feel my way through my feelings. 
Um, but yes, I definitely had my middle school, even in high school, because we lived in like the suburbs around Houston and I didn't have an older brother or sister. So there was nobody telling me Ooh, what was cool. Okay. You know, it, <laughs> yeah, was like, yeah. it was what was on the radio and what my parents listened to. So yeah, I mean, I went through a big phase of loving Debbie Gibson, but <laughs> yeah, yes, I really yes. own that now because the reason I loved Debbie Gibson was because before her, I loved the Go-Go's and I loved the Bengals. And what I really loved there was seeing a woman making music. And the big story around Debbie Gibson was for her debut album, she wrote a lot of the songs herself and she started writing songs when she was 13. So for mm. me, it was like, maybe I could write songs. I'm 13, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. One thing I am proud of is I never had a boy band phase. I'll not be taking any further <laughs> questions on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're Gen X like us, right? I am, yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. There was no new kids on the block phenomenon in my house. It was just not happening. Yeah, not for me either, surprisingly. Yeah. So yeah, we we made it through. High fives to us. So yeah, and this kind of goes into like right at the beginning of your book, you're, you're talking about how our music culture, though, from like our record collections to music programming and music writing has largely been shaped by men. And you talk about also constantly having to prove your music credentials to men. I wonder if you have seen music nerd culture become more accepting of women's perspectives and women artists over the years, or do you think it still remained kind of substantially a boys club or hasn't had much improvement? Um, it hasn't had enough improvement. There are more women artists, more artists of color now than there were 20 years ago. Um, but it's not enough. Like it's, it's not okay that only 2% of the most popular records out there are produced by women. Wow. There's no reason that it shouldn't be bigger than that. And that has been the number since about 2016 when the USC Annenberg Institute started putting their yearly reports together about women in the music industry. The executives are the ones who really decide who gets money, um, who gets marketed, who gets to be a priority. The whole industry for a long time has been a lot of middle-aged men sitting in conference rooms telling young female artists what girls want to hear from them. And it doesn't mm. make any sense at all to me. So there are more, there's among music writers and music culture, there's more appreciation um, for women and more attention paid to treating them like they're part of the canon or they're as good as instead of othering them. But there's still a lot of work to do. So in addition to your book, which I really enjoyed and like devoured very quickly, actually, um, you're also a podcaster, and I also binged the first season of your podcast, Songs in the Key of Death. I feel very seen right now, so slightly <laughs> self-conscious. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> no way. You're putting great work out there, so it should be appreciated. Oh, I just agree. I totally binged it. It was impossible not to. I was you know, standing in my kitchen, like with my mouth hanging open with a headphone on and listening. So like, if anybody walked by, they're like, what's your problem? But I was just stunned <laughs> at like this, the information and your history and your facts and things like that. It was so great. I'm a deep nerd and it took a lot of time to research those. Like some of the records are very difficult to track down and some of the things people have written about extensively and you have to filter through and figure out what feels right and sometimes just what is the best story. But it was so much fun to deeply nerd out on that. It was awesome. Episodes. 
Yeah. And I'm wondering, are you planning a second season of that podcast at all? Or Yeah, I'm hoping to do a second season later this year. We'll see. We have to see how quickly we get the Indie Rock series, like, knocked out. Yeah, and in terms of the Indie Rock series, I'm I'm curious about that. Like, what do you have a planned release date? And is it more of a narrative or an interview type of a format? Or So it's like a documentary, almost. Um, I think it's going to be different than what people have heard for these historic podcasts to a certain degree. Um, we've talked to tons of artists. We've talked to Death Cab and Spoon and Tegan from Tegan and Sarah. Um, Emily from Metric, Broken Social Scene, just like so many people from this scene. And a lot of people behind the scenes too, the people at record labels, the people that were working at licensing companies, the guy who um, was booking everyone and programming music on Napster and then iTunes when it launched. Like interesting, interesting stories. And there's a lot of kind of craziness to it. It's been a lot of fun to go back and revisit this 20 years later. And I found people have been very open. Um, people are willing to say the stuff now that they wouldn't say back then <laughs> about what they mm. think about what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So I look forward to that. And sorry, did you have a, you, you weren't sure what the release date was yet, huh? We don't know. We're still working okay. on it. We're putting okay. the episodes together and it's very much a work in progress at this time. But we're all, every time I get back to work on it, I'm just like, I can't wait for this to go out. People are going to lose their minds. Well, I'll definitely keep an eye on your your social media to find out when that drops. So that's <laughs> exciting. <good>. Yeah. <laughs> Same. And then when somebody comes on our podcast, we always ask them a rom-com related question. But since you have a music background primarily, we're going to give you a rom-com music question. And you're a lover of lists, so we wanted to find out what are your top five rom-com soundtracks. So I thought about this, and it's really hard because rom-com soundtracks do not tr- tend to be great. But mm. here are five that I think are pretty great. Um, number five, the Boomerang soundtrack. <laughs> yes, the 1992 movie starring Eddie Murphy. That Which is I still like, not seen. I still haven't seen that, but I've heard good things. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, pretty good. good. Like, it's an Eddie Murphy movie. It's fine. But the soundtrack, whoever put it together, is a genius. It is like all of the great R&B artists, the new Jack Swing stuff that was happening in the late 80s and into the early 90s and like that's where Tony Braxton, she broke off of that soundtrack, which is crazy oh, wow. to think about. Um, it's so good. It stands up. Like, you don't even need to watch the movie, I don't think. Just <laughs> listen to that soundtrack. Um, number four, I thought really hard about all my John Hughes movies and, like, all the 80s stuff. But I decided, as much as I enjoy everything John Hughes did, I feel that his soundtracks are a little inconsistent. So I picked Valley Girl instead, which um, anyone who hasn't seen that needs to. It's a classic and it's a modern day riff of Romeo and Juliet based in the valley. But the music is so witty and self-aware. Like they really play to what's happening in the scenes. The music is frequently a commentary. And it even opens with the Frank Zappa Valley Girl song that is making fun of the whole Valley Girl talk phenomenon. I think it's genius. Like there are just layers and layers to what's happening in that soundtrack. 
Yeah. And you write um, about that in your book too, which was very interesting. So yeah. Yeah. And then number three, I'm going to pick The Graduate. It started the trend of having one artist, which was Simon and Garfunkel, soundtrack mm-hmm. a whole movie. And that's mm-hmm. something we've seen a lot since then. Uh, but it's very specific. It's very art filmy. And then there are all these really wonderful pop songs. There are not a lot of artists who can pull this off, I think. There aren't a lot of people with like the, mm. the depth to hit all the notes one would need to soundtrack a, uh, a rom-com. But I think this is a great one. Um, number two is the Netflix film, Ibiza, Love Drunk. <laughs> I love this movie and it is all takes place, like a huge chunk of it takes place in various clubs. The guy who's the love interest is a DJ, um, which usually is a douchebag, but he seems like he's cool. Um, <laughs> but they do a really good job of um, using contemporary music and using dance music. It's not so much that I would put a playlist together or buy an album. It's more that it's pitch perfect within the context of the movie. Another one that's witty and self-aware. And then number one, I think at this point, everyone's number one should be Someone Great, another Netflix movie. This one is the movie that broke Lizzo. I mean, that was such a huge moment. And Taylor Swift wrote a song based on her feelings after seeing this movie. It's been really influential. The woman who put the soundtrack together was, um, well, she's the writer and director of the movie. She's a former music executive and she really knows her stuff. They get all the details absolutely perfect throughout the whole movie. Um, The title of the movie is an LCD sound system song, and they repeatedly reference that band. They're a New York dance band. Movie's set in New York. Like, usually a big part of my problem with rom-com music is that it feels disconnected from the location and the story and the characters. Like, you just put something in um, where it's like music swells and it could be anything. But Someone Great is so purposeful, and they really connect the dots all the time about um, things. There's a running storyline throughout the movie about the Postal Service reunion show that is the exact correct year that it happened. (laughs) I mean, it's just like real specific stuff for people that are real nerdy about music. And as someone who's like that, it bothers me a lot when people get the details wrong. This movie does not. That is like a very well thought out list. I don't think I've had anyone think so hard about one of our pleasantry questions ever. (laughs) This is a great example of what you're going to find if you look at Courtney's book, by the way. She's just very like thorough in in telling her reasons for choosing things. And I love it. So you definitely want to check that out. And if you're interested in learning more about Courtney's work in general, you can follow Courtney on Twitter at Courtney E. Smith or on Instagram at the Courtney E. Smith. And be sure to check out her podcast, Songs in the Key of Death, anywhere you get your podcasts. Like both Sophia and I binged it. Both of us are busy people. So if we could binge it, I think you're probably going to end up binging it too. 100%. But before we get started with today's episode, just a reminder, as usual on the show, we'll have a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode, and we'll let you know when the spoiler section begins. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media, our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom, and our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod. 
And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. And now let's listen to part of the trailer for High Fidelity. Rob Gordon has a successful business and a dedicated following. I used to go to the double door to hear you spin. You were unbelievable. But when it comes to dating... Hi. Hi. Is this Penny Hardwood? Hi, Caroline. He's still searching. Are you in or out, Rob? I'm sorry? Are you in or out, Rob? I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. For the right woman. What's your name? Laura! Now his search may have ended, <laughs> but his problems just started. And I like you with Laura. I don't think much of this Ian guy. What Ian guy? You gotta be kidding me. The night Touchstone Chicago Pictures guy. presents. How's Ian? He's growing on me. He looks like he could grow on something. John Cusack, Jack Black, Lisa Bonet, Joan Cusack, Eben Yila, Tim Robbins, Lily Taylor, and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Based on the international best-selling novel... Are you going to line that flower bed all night? No. High Fidelity. I'm looking for a record for my daughter. I just called to say I love you. Do we look like the kind of store that tells I just called to say I love you? Go to the mall. What's your problem? Do you even know your daughter? There's no way she likes that song. Oh, oh, oh. Is she in a coma? Yeah, that trailer's so weird. It's like somebody didn't actually understand the plot of the movie, but oh well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anyway, that's our trailer um, for High Fidelity, which came out March 28th, 2000, directed by Stephen Frears, written by D.V. DeVincentis, Steve Pink, John Cusack, and Scott Rosenberg, based on the novel by Nick Hornby, and starring John Cusack, Eben Yila, Todd Luizzo, and Jack Black. Uh, And the basic premise of High Fidelity, for those who don't know, it's about this guy, Rob Gordon, who owns a record store. His living girlfriend, Laura, has just broken up with him. And as Rob deals with the breakup, we learn about his top five most memorable breakups and his perception that he's always being dumped. Um, We also get to know Rob's record store championship vinyl, where he and his workers, Dick and Barry, talk music all day long, constructing mixtapes and top five lists. And soon after the breakup, Rob finds out that Laura has moved in with another guy and um, he's on a quest to find out what happened to the women on his most memorable top five breakup list and eventually stumbles onto some self-knowledge. So there's a lot of uh, interesting things to learn about High Fidelity. Uh, First of all, it's based on the novel of the same name by British writer Nick Hornby, which was published in 1995. And I actually, I think I read the book before the movie came out. So I feel kind of cool about that. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) The idea to make High Fidelity into a movie was suggested to John Cusack by studio head Joe Roth and music supervisor Kathy Nelson after Cusack worked with them on Gross Point Blank in 1997. And Gross Point Blank also had a pretty highly designed soundtrack and music angle. Mm -hmm. Um, Cusack immediately connected with the book and became a co-writer on the screenplay. In an interview clip quoted at consequence.net, Cusack said, 
The only difference with the record store that I grew up in is we were obsessed with British music and the characters in the Hornby novel were obsessed with soul, rhythm, and blues. But once you switched those, it was the same guys. It was just a male confessional. And also it was about a love affair with music, themes about how music is autobiographical in our lives, how deep and meaningful music is to people. So Cusack took on the project and he and his co-writers all grew up together in the Chicago area. And so they were easily able to like kind of move the setting from London to Chicago and they set scenes in like their favorite clubs and bars. And that gives the movie a lot of specificity. Um, The screenwriters were also largely responsible for selecting the music for the film. And in terms of the casting, there's a few different things to know. Barry, the part of Barry was actually written with Jack Black in mind. Like he hadn't broken out yet then. He was in Tenacious D and he'd done some smaller film roles and some theater. But this ended up being his breakout role. But Jack Black actually was going to pass on this movie, like because he was intimidated by working with Stephen Frears and by the high profile nature of the project. Like that's wild to me. But like he eventually realized that not doing this movie because he was afraid was a silly thing. So it is not wild to me. Stephen Frears is like serious. Like he's a heavy hitting director. It's almost wild to me that he directed this movie. (laughs) Well, he was asked by um, Cusack because uh, he did the grifters with John Cusack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then he also, of course, directed Dangerous Liaisons. But he's had, he's had a very varied career, really. Yeah, we're not going to talk about him in depth today, unfortunately. But yeah, interesting guy. Okay, and then let's see, some other thing, almost castings. David Arquette was actually originally offered the role of Dick, but he turned it down, which I'm glad because I like David Arquette, but Todd Luizzo is perfect. Although mm-hmm. my husband and I think it's hilarious that Todd Luizzo played another sensitive music fan in the 1996 movie, Jerry Maguire. So we have this like headcanon where like Dick is actually in the witness protection program working at this record store in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. And I don't you feel like Jack Black and David Arquette would be too much chaotic energy together? Yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not I mean, David Arquette, I'm sure he can act, but like I just never seen him play this kind the, the type of character that you see Todd Luizzo play in this, who's just the essence of meekness. Like uh-huh. I, just beautiful. <laughs> Yeah. And let's see. And then Liz Fair, who's one of my favorite artists, an indie rock star from Chicago, was asked to audition for the role of singer Marie DeSalle. But they ultimately went with Lisa Bonet, which I think was a smart decision, even though I love Liz Fair. So I didn't know that at all. I think that's super interesting. I mean, we've never seen Liz Fair act. So I don't I mean, I don't know if that's the reason it didn't happen. They did end up using one of her songs in the soundtrack. Yeah. But that's so specific to Chicago because she's yeah. so identified with the scene there. So and then Tim Robbins was chosen for the role of John Cusack's romantic rival, Ian. And Cusack and Robbins had appeared in a lot of movies together, including an early co-starring appearance in the movie Tapeheads in 1988. So they have a lot of history. And High Fidelity was made for $30 million and ended up making $47 million worldwide. So like not a huge profit, but a profit. And in addition to the movie, High Fidelity had a very short run on Broadway in 2006. I think it was like a couple weeks or a month. Uh, I missed that completely. And I was living in New York then. Wow. Must have been very short. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that the soundtrack was full of original compositions. It wasn't like a jukebox musical. So it was like they're trying to make all new songs for a movie or for a show that's like about music. So it's kind of. That's a terrible idea. Yeah. Unless you're like a really great composer. I wouldn't try that at home. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Mm, No. 
And then High Fidelity was also turned into a TV series in 2020 starring Zoe Kravitz, who is the daughter of High Fidelity actress Lisa Bonet. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that um, later on in the podcast today. Okay. So in terms of the movie, though, so I kind of want to find out, like, when everybody saw this movie, what you thought about it at the time, and how it's aged for you over the years. Um, I saw it in theaters right when it came out. I was still living in Dallas. I hadn't graduated from college yet. And I was about to, though, and I knew that I was moving to New York somehow. I hadn't quite figured out how I was going to make it happen. But I was hanging out with the group of guy friends that I hung out with um, in Dallas, the guy who I interned for on 94.5 The Edge on the Adventure Club, the indie rock show on Sunday nights and all of his friends. And I'd read the book because they'd all read the book and talked about Mm. it a lot. And they used it to get into these conversations about making lists about music that I thought were kind of stupid. Um, (laughs) So I was really curious about how they were gonna adapt this for the screen. But more than that, I was curious what music they were gonna use in it. So like when you did see the movie, what what was your impression of it? I thought it was good. The thing that I remember questioning the most was the Bruce Springsteen cameo. Like why? Hmm. Of all artists, of course it's Bruce and he's an icon, but like, Hmm. why? Why would Bruce Springsteen be the voice in this guy's head? And the screenplay never addresses it. Like there's no Rob lamenting or even, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking about Bruce Springsteen. So why? Yeah, I think like in the book it was – there was a similar thing with Bob Dylan. I didn't get a chance to reread the book, but I read that there was a similar thing with Bob Dylan, but they could not get Bob Dylan. And John right. Cusack just called up Bruce Springsteen and was like, we'll get him. <laughs> that yep. totally makes sense. Like, yeah. yes, you're right. And of course they were never going to get Bob Dylan. Frankly, they're lucky they got a Bob Dylan song for the soundtrack. <laughs> but why? Like, you need to reflect in the script somewhere that this guy cares about Bruce Springsteen. It never comes up. He's just suddenly on the screen. Why? Yeah, yeah. A fair point. Fair point. It didn't. I didn't it question it that deeply. Point. I was like, ah, eh, it's Bruce Springsteen. Every guys like him. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think the screenwriters felt the same way about it. They were like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I I also saw this movie when it came out, and I had also read the book, and. I don't, I don't think like I had like that many worries about how it was going to be translated. I I was a John Cusack fan as many in our generation were. And at the time I really loved the movie and I probably rewatched it many, many times. This movie was actually, we're going to talk about breakup songs later, but this movie is like, has been a breakup movie for me before, which um, I don't know if it's like the most realistic breakup movie, but we'll, we'll talk about that in the spoiler section, but it helped me get through some breakups and yeah, I, I liked it a lot over the years, but when I rewatched it, there's definitely some things I want to talk about that like did not sit as well with me on this most recent viewing, (laughs) but still, I think there's a lot to relate to. I think it's really funny. And of course the dialogue is so sharp because most of it's drawn directly from Nick Hornby's book. And I love Nick Hornby as an author. So yeah. And so, any thoughts I, for you? Yeah, like- I have a VHS copy of this, and I totally love it. And it was one of those things, I didn't watch it obsessively. Um, but when it would come on, I, I would think, oh, I'll just put this on in the background while I do stuff or whatever. And I couldn't. I, I was drawn in every time, sitting 
staring and into the story. And then happened this time too. I'm like, I'll fold the laundry while I watch. I stopped. I mean, it's just folding laundry, but it, I was just sitting there with like, you know, a, a shirt in my hand, just drawn into the story again. So those are my feelings about it. But yes, this time some things didn't quite sit as well <laughs> as they did, you know, the last time I saw it. 10 years ago or something. And I mean, that's all to the good because that just means our culture and our expectations are changing a little bit. So yeah. 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 Anyway, we'll talk about that a little more as we go on. Any other thoughts anyone wants to have before we go into the cast and crew? Nope. All right. So cast and crew. So first of all, I want to talk about Nick Hornby because his work has been turned into a number of rom-com and sort of rom-com adjacent movies and TV shows. So Nick Hornby is a novelist, an essayist, and a screenwriter. Other adaptations of his work include Fever Pitch, which I guess there's a 1997 British version of. I only knew about the 2005 yes. American mm. version. The British one's seen- so much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen the the American one, but it didn't look super great. So <laughs> It's very out. bad. Like, I love Drew Barrymore, but it's bad. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. We also have other adaptations include About a Boy, which I love, um, Juliet Naked, great, yes. A Long Way Down, an Italian adaptation of Slam, and the High Fidelity TV show. And then recently in 2019, Hornby created and wrote a TV series based on his book, State of the Union, and that's about an older couple going through marital therapy. And another of his novels, Funny Girl, is currently being turned into a TV series called Funny Woman, and it's currently in post-production. And then I did not know this. Hornby also has adapted other writers' work for the screen. He wrote the screenplays for An Education, Wild, and Brooklyn. I didn't know wow. that. I didn't I know was that like, either. That's pretty cool. And in addition to writing novels, short stories, and screenplays, he has also worked as a journalist and essayist, and he's written a number of nonfiction books, too. So transitioning to our friend John Cusack, I love him, and I love that I get to do this part of introducing him so let's see his first imdb credit um is a supporting role in a film called class from 1983 but let's be honest the supporting role or you know the most popular film where we maybe first had our introduction with john kusick was um one of the geeks in uh, 16 candles in 1984 yeah and his sister his and his sister was also like one of the most memorable characters in that joan cusack with her like uh, mouth guard like trying to drink from the water fountain oh my gosh i forgot about that (laughs) (laughs) yes she's fantastic okay Let's see, his first starring role was in a Rob Reiner rom-com, The Short Thing, in 1985, followed by the absurdist rom-com Better Off Dead of the same year. And other prominent work in the 80s include The Journey of Natty Gann. Yes, we totally watch that all the time. One Crazy Summer, Eight Men Out, and Say Anything. Cusack started out in the 90s in the critically acclaimed film The Grifters, directed by high-fidelity director... Stephen Frears. And then in the early 90s, Cusack appeared in a number of indie films, including Shadows and Fog, The Player, Bob Roberts, and Bullets Over Broadway. And then in the late 90s, some of his higher profile films included Gross Point Blank, Con Air, The Thin Red Line, and Being John Malkovich before High Fidelity came out in 2000. Cusick appeared in a couple of rom-coms right after High Fidelity, America's Sweethearts and Serendipity. We've seen them both. Later, he appeared in Must Love Dogs. Did anybody see it? 
No, that's not great. I've um, seen it. It was ugh. yes, and I love it. Oh no, <laughs> it's like a total guilty pleasure. It's not good, but yes. I I love it and I watch it whenever it comes on or comes up on Netflix. <laughs> well, she love must it. love dogs then. Okay, good. <laughs> No, I'm not going to argue with anybody's guilty pleasure because What's Your Number is one of my favorite rom-coms and I know that objectively it's not very good. Yeah, but I, I mean, when you enjoy, when you derive enjoyment of something, it just, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear yes. you. Uh, John Cusack's been in a wide range of movies since the early 2000s, including Runaway Jerry, 1408, 2012, Hot Tub Time Machine, Love and Mercy, Chirac, and many smaller projects. And most recently, Cusack appeared in the 2020 TV series Utopia and the 2022 movie Pursuit. He's currently in pre-production on a film called My Only Sunshine. And Cusack also co-wrote the screenplays we've said earlier for High Fidelity and his four other writing credits for Floundering, Gross Point Blank, War Inc., and We Are Not Animals. And no top fives here, but does anybody have just like their top one John Cusack movie? Uh, it's Say Anything. I That's the whole reason I had a crush on John Cusack in the 90s and the 2000s. 100%. <laughs> uh, yeah, Say Anything. Lloyd Dobler. I'm the odd one out here. I just never really responded to Say Anything. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how to relate to you as a human now. Like, I know, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I only I only Sky never did it for me and when I was watching rom-coms it was for me it was all about like do I identify with the female protagonist I think more oh, than do I care yeah. about the guy so yeah like okay. I think I honestly like high fidelity would have been my answer before and now I'm a little like after this most recent watch watching I'm a little like floundering in the air so yeah my double features will have some of his though so I do want to give a special shout out to 2012 though which is the most I wonderful love that movie too Oh, good. See, see, we can relate to each other again. <laughs> yes, it I'm is so the glad. ultimate. It is the ultimate disaster movie. It does have a little bit of a rom com element to it as well. So, and John Cusack and is adorable. He is adorable, and his hand, deft handling of a limo in an earthquake is amazing. Yes, yes. Anyway, so yep, John Cusack, everyone, and now we come to. Ibn Hyla, which I'm going to go with the trailer pronunciation, because if you look online for how to pronounce this poor woman's name, it has been pronounced every which way. Anyway, Ibn Hyla, <laughs> it plays Laura in the movie who breaks up with John Cusack's Rob. She is a Danish actress. Director Stephen Frears asked her to try out for the role after seeing her movie Mifun at the Berlin Film Festival. Hyla had a young son, though, while she was making High Fidelity. So when she kind of broke up from the movie... She decided she made the choice not to move to Hollywood and try to pursue her opportunities because she wanted her son to raise her child in Denmark, which makes sense to me. So yeah, she totally yeah. a smart choice to do there. <laughs> yeah. So she never pursued a big Hollywood career, but she has worked steadily over the years, mostly in Europe. In, in Denmark, she's best known as a television actress, but she's also done films. She's still working today. And some of her other prominent English language films include Defiance. And The Eclipse. And I'm totally, when I get a chance, I'm totally going to see this one called The Eclipse because it has a great cast and it looks like sort of like a haunting, like a, a supernatural thriller with maybe a romantic angle in it. So that totally hits my sweet spot. And I would love to see what she does now that she's a little bit older. 
I am so glad to be on this podcast just to know what happened to this actress and the story and how she ended up in this movie at all. Yep. I remember going to see it and just being like, who is this person? And how is Catherine Zeta-Jones playing like second female lead? That's interesting, yeah. especially considering she would go on to be like co-lead with um, Julia Roberts, John Cusack and Billy Crystal in just a few years in America's yeah. Sweetheart. So this was like a huge question of how did this casting happen for me? Yeah. I mean, Stephen Frears was actually talking on the special features on the uh, DVD. He actually talks about casting and like, how he searches for people. And one of the reasons even Hyla got it was because she looks like the kind of person who could just see through Rob's shit. And I'm like, totally. So 100%. And then Catherine Zeta-Jones was cast in her particular role because this is the girlfriend that like was like the one that he didn't feel good enough for. And so Catherine Zeta-Jones, I think at the time, would have been considered like the hottest woman to walk the earth kind of thing. So yeah. yeah, I think like he's just put, and I totally relate to that. I used to cast theater and you just have to cast like what feels in your gut, like this person goes with this role. Like this, well, they're going to serve that function. To yeah. me, this goes back to talking about having a really impressive and well verse director helming the movie because that wouldn't have been the choice that a lot of people who are habitual rom-com directors might have made yeah for sure so uh other cast members some of them we spoke about todd loiso as dick jack black as barry lisa bonet as marie de salle Catherine zeta jones as charlie tim robbins as ian lily taylor as sarah Joan Cusack is Liz and Sarah Gilbert is Anna. So this movie um, opens as any movie called High Fidelity perhaps should on a close-up of a record and it's playing You're Gonna Miss Me by the 13th Floor Elevators. So can I tell you seeing this in the theaters for the first time and that being the first song that is a band from Texas who were iconic, mysterious, amazing and we were all just like, oh my God, it's going to be, the music's going to be so good if they're starting with this. Nice. Oh, cool. Just like the okay. mixtape rules in this movie, you got to start with a killer or something. <laughs> exactly. You come out guns blazing. <laughs> so after we, we see this record spinning, we follow a headphone cord. So we see the record first, then the headphone cord, and we follow it to Rob. Uh, the music is bigger than him in a sense. And then we have Rob directly addressing the camera, John Cusack's character. And he does this throughout the movie. And originally in the screenplay, this was all written as voiceover. And I'm so glad that they decided to make it direct address instead of voiceover. I mean, not every actor yeah. can pull off direct address, but John Cusack really can. I mean, mm -hmm. you are, and you already feel predisposed to identify with him because of his past movies, right? So like it works. Mm. So this is the opening monologue that Rob gives us. What came first? the music or the misery. People worry about kids playing with guns or watching violent videos, that some sort of culture of violence will take them over. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? So, this opening monologue, um, it occurs to me that like, yeah, these cultural products do actually have like a huge effect on me, us. And I was thinking about guys I'd known who have really defeatist ideas about love. And almost always they listen to the same kinds of types of music. And if you, and, and then also if you ask them if they like comedy or tragedy better, like Shakespeare, for example, they, they like tragedy like every time. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I think in our culture too, like men are encouraged to like genres that are very dark, that don't have a lot of romance. And so I'm wondering, like, do you yourself think that you've been affected by like the music you listen to? Do you think your ideas about love have been influenced by them? And in what way? You know, this whole monologue is directly from the book and that's the last lines. Um, did I listen to pop music because I was miserable or was I miserable because I listened to pop music that I have had men I'm friends with quote to me directly. And that really stuck around in the culture, especially after this movie came out, especially the indie rock culture for a while. Um, And I don't, I, I don't think of music that way, but I think men do. And I think it has to do more with how they're conditioned Uh, by society to not express their feelings, not name their feelings, not be emotional, not experience um, feelings that are feminine because that's bad and not enjoy things that are feminine because that's also bad. But you Mm -hmm. can like Morrissey. That's okay. Like you can like The Cure. That's okay. And those are the things that can take you to this place where you have these, you know, intense emotions. Um, and it's still masculine enough. But this idea that like <laughs> misery and pop music are intertwined, that's only true if you listen to miserable pop music. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And I was thinking about that in my own life. And like, but I think I've gotten other ideas about love, unfortunately, from some of the pop music I've listened to, because I've listened to a lot of women artists like who will talk about like, you know, just holding on to hope and like true love and like giving everything they can and stuff like that. So it kind of gives me a reverse message of like, you should really put your whole self out there and focus on this stuff. And like, I think there and rom-coms themselves, some of them give you very unrealistic ideas about love. So I think like on a subconscious level, some of the cultural that women have been encouraged to ingest has also, you know, conditioned me in different ways. So I, I thought that was interesting. I wonder. I, mean, Sophia, I became a I became a feminist because of the music I listened to in the nineties, mm. both rock music and country music. Like it was a big part of the marketing message. So yeah, I see what you're saying. So after he's delivered this monologue about how m- maybe music has made him miserable, or maybe he listens to the mu- music because he's miserable. <laughs> um, Laura, <laughs> we see Laura coming over and unplugging his headphones, and. I really like this. It's like my first indication that she is the reality check character in this movie, that she's going to get him out of his like self-indulgent rant and move him back into relationship with people. That's how I interpret it anyway. And Laura unplugs his headphones so she can talk to him and she's moving out. We see her right in the middle of moving out after they've just broken up after she broke up with him. Rob doesn't want her to leave. He's doing the thing. You can just stay for one night, just stay for dinner, you know, whatever, like trying to keep her there. And she does not want to stay. She just, she gets out of there. So we're right in the middle of one of the most painful moments in anyone's life. And Rob goes into a list. My desert island, all time, top five, most memorable breakups in chronological order. By the way, I love that it's a desert island list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Who's on this? Like, what? How is this a conversation on a desert island? I yeah, like Why usually would you bring that baggage with you on a desert ex- island, like, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Usually, good things are coming to the desert island, so I don't understand. But yeah, anyway, it, this list is those were the ones that really hurt. And then he yells, "Can you see your name on that list, Laura?" So he's trying to pretend that she didn't hurt him. And so for the next part of the podcast here, I want us to go over these different his 
his breakup list. It's not in the order it's told in the movie. These kind of are interspersed throughout the plot. But let's just go through them really quick here. His first breakup is Allison Ashmore. And this is like this girl that he makes out with after school, says two hours after school, three days in a row, after which he is replaced without any communication by somebody named Kevin Bannister. And this was not very relatable to me because I did not have an elementary school boyfriend. But did either of you have such a situation in your life, a heartbreak at a young age? Mm, it wasn't until junior high that I started like feeling heartbroken over boys. It all felt very inconsequential that young. Oh, actually, it probably was junior high in the movie, too. Yeah, they just look younger than that to me. So you yeah, had they look younger than that to me, which probably just says that I'm old. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I had one in junior high, this guy who uh, we were going together, as the kids used to say, and he broke up with me when I dropped off of student council to start another club. And I was the president of this club. Like I was out there getting adults to come to our after school meetings and getting other kids to do service projects. And he was like, well, if you're not on student council, then you're not popular. So I don't want to date anymore. And I was just like, that was the beginning of my life of thinking men are dumb. Sorry, men. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Do you know by any chance what happened to this person? Have you ever looked at them? Up Absolutely or? no idea. I've never bothered okay. to look him up. He's too stupid to live, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I wonder if he's still oh. social climbing in such a manner. Oh, well. <laughs> no, not. Good Lord. So then we get um, number two breakup. Penny Hardwick. And this is this begins the part of the movie that doesn't age so well. This is the dialogue that is delivered about Penny Hardwick in the movie. She wouldn't let me put my hand underneath or even on top of her bra. Attack and defense, invasion and repulsion. It was as if breasts were little pieces of property that had been unlawfully annexed by the opposite sex. It was rightfully ours, and we wanted them back. Sometimes I got so bored of trying to touch her breasts that I would try to touch between her legs. So yep. yeah, that that line, man. I mean, yep. Yeah. <laughs> so I rewatched this definitely for the first time since the Me Too movement for this mm -hmm. podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh -huh. what this made me think about, in even more specifically later on when we meet Penny, it made me think about things that Nick Hornby has said about this character that he's not supposed to be be completely likable. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. we, we get likable because of John Cusack. Like he's extremely relatable and we want to root for him. But Rob of the book and even Rob in this movie at a lot of times is a dumbass. Um, totally. And this is a thing where it's like, he's too stupid to realize what's right in front of him. So my, like it does, it's not okay. But my takeaway here is this is our first big tell because we're hearing everything from Rob's point of view. This is the first big tell where it's like, oh, maybe he's not a good guy all the way through. Like he doesn't, there's a lot he doesn't know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Kusai talks about that in the special features, um, you know, that this character is very flawed and that the women watching this film were like, oh, finally a true story about how men really are. You know? <laughs> <And> identified <laughs> with like, that's them. Um, but yeah, it was, yes, post Me Too, it was hard to listen to. And I'm like, oh, it's like, I don't know, before it was funny or I don't know, I, I didn't think about it. Just like, mm. oh, okay, that's just yeah. stupid guys. 
yeah, I think it's before like, it was just true. Like yeah. who hasn't had that experience with some guy in high school or college or more I, than some guy? I'm actually right. probably one of the only people who hasn't had that experience. I've had very good luck with guys in my life, but I mean, it was that you've made good decisions. I definitely have not. <laughs> I mean, I didn't always make good decisions. I think I was just lucky a lot, but like, um, I, but it was in the culture, you know, it was like yeah. you watch Greece and like Danny's doing the same thing with Sandy, yep. you know, like these yeah, beloved yep. movies, 16 candles, even worse. Somebody's passed out. Like, yeah. Oh, here's a passed out girl for you to, you know, take advantage of. I've, I've been lucky, but I, at the same time, like this was what was considered normal when High Fidelity yeah. came out still. Yeah. And then like, Sophia, you were going to say yeah. then how they break up. Yeah. Right. So as, as Robbery tells it, when he breaks up with her, he's, he's going to go kiss her goodnight or something. And, and she, and, but then he pulls back and he's like, what's the point? It never goes anywhere. And then he goes on to say how like pissed off he was that he hears that Penny Hardwick uh, went off with some guy and after three dates slept with him. So yeah, and we'll revi- we'll revisit that more a little later. Yeah, we sure will. Um, may I say what Penny Penny's top five recording artists are? Yeah, which is an important detail that Rob needs to tell us about. Yeah, Carly Simon, Carol King, James Taylor, Cat Stevens, and Elton John. And I have to say. That's a great top five. Like, it's a great top five that paints a very specific picture of a person. Yes, it certainly does. And I like it. So there's the first chapter of my book is about how to make um, a list, a top five list. And it's directly inspired by the guys I was friends with that read this book and then eventually saw this movie when it came out because they actually made top five lists all the time. Like I used to mess with them and tell them that my number one Star Wars movie was the one with the Ewoks just because it would drive them nuts. <laughs> but I didn't understand for a long time how men talk to each other in these lists and that the ways that it um, expressed something about each other to them, mm-hmm. it was like their own weird language. And I had to make up my own rules for how to even make a list like that. Because otherwise, how is your list not just the same as everybody else? You know, how is it not like David Bowie and Radiohead, you know, just obvious stuff. So, I mean, if you want to read about that, you can read it in my book, but. (laughs) Yeah, I found, I found that interesting that your rules, although I am not enough of a music nerd to be able to follow all of your rules. Like, Yeah, like that's okay. You, it's okay to break the rules. We we did have one common um artist, REM was on mine too, but you may have switched Aww. off of REM by now. Oh, so. they're forever on mine. <laughs> so yeah, and have your top five recording artists changed considerably since your book? I will ask that. Oh, you know, three of them are the same and two of them are in flux, and I just haven't really, you know, bothered to make a list again because All right. nobody's asked me. So I thought about it and I, you're going to see that I'm not a music nerd, but like my top number one would be Queen. Um, number two nice. would be R.E.M. Number three would be Liz Fair. Nice. And now I'm and now I'm totally forgetting like, like right? it's hard to hold this stuff in your head, too. That's the thing nobody tells you. Like, how are they going around just holding these lists of things in their head? <laughs> Yeah, no, honestly, I forgot number four, which seems like then they shouldn't be number four. And number, I'm, 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 I'm breaking rules because my number five, like, I'm really only getting into her. So, like, 
I don't feel like it's legitimate for me to include it, but like I've not listened yet to something by Nina Simone that I didn't love. So, and I'm trying to become more schooled in her. So she's my number five. Oh shit! Number four documentary. Just remembered number four. Number oh yeah, I saw the documentary about Nina Simone. That's why I started listening to her. Actually, I get into music through movies usually. Like that's how I learned about music. I figured I remembered number four. It's so obvious. Johnny Cash. He's back. Okay, that's a great. Hell yeah! Yeah. yeah. With regard to your number five, there's another rule that isn't listed in my book, but I think it should be there. And it's the number five with a bullet rule. You oh. can't be just getting into someone. You just call them your number five with a bullet, which means they're on the rise. Yeah, definitely on it. the rise. Can I comment about your Johnny Cash? Yeah. It's this movie, High Fidelity, that had me read Cash by Johnny Cash. So <laughs> was- what did you wait? What did you think about it? Great. It was good. Yeah, like, it's uh, good. You know, Johnny. I mean, it's not <laughs> oversold. If, if one thing you take away from High Fidelity is that you need to read Cash by Johnny Cash, that is the correct thing to take away from it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Where were we? We were yeah. on number three. Yeah. Charlie Nicholson, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. Guys, was she as big as she was? Well, this is kind of a first role-ish, right? Um, no, I, I think she was already been in Zorro. Yeah. yeah. Zorro oh, was a huge Oh, okay, 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 yeah. okay. I can't remember what year it came out, but I'm pretty sure that when Catherine Zeta-Jones was cast in this, it was almost like a cameo because she was already big. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that feels right. And so Rob's, this is his what he says about going out with Charlie. We went out for two years and I never got comfortable and he's very insecure. And uh, when they break up, it's pouring down rain and he's yelling up to her window and Charlie, you fucking bitch. Let's work it out. (laughs) That is like our second moment of this character being the worst where it's just like, don't stand outside someone's apartment, you psychopath. And also don't, yell at them and call them a bitch what are you doing totally. but i found that to be one of the funniest though things in right. the entire movie like and it is also like so raw and true about certain breakups where like at one on the one hand you're so angry at the person that they broke up with you and on the other hand you're like please take me back and it's like <laughs> i agree that's i laugh so hard yes like i i don't I don't let that feeling linger anymore if I even have it. But like, I remember being younger and just being caught in this like thing of like, somebody has taken away something from me that I needed, you know, like feeling possessive of somebody in a relationship and just like being like, what are you doing? I hate you. I love you. Come back. Like that's a scientific phenomenon. The whole thing where your brain produces the same kind of chemicals it does on drugs. When you fall in love, you literally are going through withdrawal. Yeah. Yeah. I've really, I've grown, I've grown over the years, trust me, but like, <laughs> but I can still remember, I can still remember. I've grown yeah. detached, you know, just kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a healthy form of, there's, there's some form of detachment that is healthy, right? Like, for sure. For yeah. Sure. Well, anyway, so this is a breakup that breaks him and this is what Rob says. I kind of lost it all, you know, faith, dignity, about 15 pounds. You got to yeah. punch your own weight. So yeah, like this is the breakup that kind of breaks him. And like, I don't have one that broke me that horribly. Like, I don't know if you guys did. We don't, you don't have to tell details, but do you have, have, do you relate to this at all? Did you have the breakup that broke you? 
I don't, but I saw um, a guy friend go through a breakup like this. It's the guy who was um, the radio DJ, and it was with a girl who was too hot for him, and she got bored, <laughs> I guess, and broke up with him. And there'd be nights where he would like put on songs on the radio show that were for her, air quotes. And I'm like, oh. how's she going to know? And he's just like, she'll know this Velvet Underground song is about her. And I'm like, okay, great. Oh, oh. That's kind of relatable to me too, sadly. <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah, and, and then you're saying, so you're saying this girl was too hot for him. Like, he comes to the realization, he says, you gotta punch your own weight, which I don't know, man. Like, I don't go around measuring people, like, oh, I can date, they're above me or below me, I can date them. People are such complex machines, right? Like, and mm. they all have different qualities. And I think, yeah, I, I don't really b- believe in this punch your own weight thing, but do you guys have a different opinion than I do? I don't know. I think you're really um, attractive once you become a little more settled at at the age they're talking about university age or early 20s. You're trying to go for the best looking person you can get. But when you get a little older, I think you really settle into trying to find people who are like you. And that can be who kind of look like you just unconsciously, but also who like the things that you like. And a relationship in his 30s with someone like Charlie would be really uncomfortable for him. Like the social life of it and the things she wants to do and the different goals, hmm. it wouldn't hmm. it wouldn't work. But in your 20s, you're willing to try everybody on and see what fits. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I mean, I'm more like saying like, I don't think that Charlie is necessarily above him or below him, like just based on the way she looks or these like surface qualities. But yeah, yeah. Well, I think what's more that... He's not confident yet. This whole movie, he is not confident. He's moving yeah, towards right. confidence and security in himself, but he's clearly even worse about it when he's younger. Oh, yeah. One little note that I thought was interesting, and Rob's character says he's read the book Love in the Time of Cholera to show what a sensitive guy he was. And I, the back of my brain, I was thinking, wasn't that the book in Serendipity, the, the rom-com he did? And yes, oh my the God. book that plays a huge role in the movie Serendipity. And oh I don't God. know if that actually was... Um, you like know, on purpose thing. or just a coincidence, yeah. but there you go. That's really funny. I forgot about that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Rom-com knowledge goes deep here. <laughs> 100%. So for me, number four, number four is actually the funniest breakup for me. And that is um, Sarah Kendrew and Sarah Kendrew played by Lily Taylor is like the other kind of like sad, broken up with rebounding person that he meets. And I love this line. So Lily Taylor's character goes, I'm just going to be by myself for a while. Rob goes, me too, me too. And then they like start kissing and I'm like, yep. yep. Uh, been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Funny. I don't know if I've done that exact thing with somebody who was also rebounding, but I have definitely rebounded and been like, I'm just going to be by myself for a while. And then found myself making out with someone like three hours later. So. I feel like in situations like that, though, you really always have um, a built-in agreement going into it. Like, we're both broken right now. This is not a thing, but we're just going to do this. (laughs) Well, Rob apparently thinks that they did not have an agreement because he feels betrayed when she leaves him. So, yeah. Yeah. Poor Rob. I don't know. I don't know that Rob really thinks that. I think Rob is just constantly trying to be unrejected. Mm, Yeah. And then number five turns out to be somebody who didn't actually make the list. He says, Jackie Alden wasn't a big deal. Like it was a casual thing and he was glad when it was over. 
And so Laura finally makes the list. He says, congratulations, Laura. You made it to the top five. Number five, with a bullet. Welcome. That's right. The number five with a bullet rule. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you guys, and you feel free to like not answer this question if you want, but do you have a top five most memorable breakups? You don't have to say any names or just even a, a few, a top three, a top two. I mean, there are breakups that still bother me. I don't think I would put them into a list because these are real people, real things that happen. I would not rank them. That feels really like crap. Well, I was going to do them in chronological order, like the way he does in the movie, movie. like they're in Um, chronological order. And I can do mine really quick first. I only have three too, even though I've had more breakups. Yeah, I've had more breakups than five, but I don't know that I would say there are three that still like bug me or that I think something about. And the number one one is a British guy who didn't tell me for the six months that we were dating that he had a kid. And then he just like drops this bomb on me. And I'm oh. like, what? Why would you? <laughs> no, this is, well, these things are broken completely. So I guess we're not dating anymore, but wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That, that's memorable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you have any more or should we we do our list like oh, i think just the one is plenty <laughs> okay yeah my my first one is the previously mentioned um somewhat gnomish looking guy who um who had a lot of hot girlfriends <laughs> he was my first love um my first um summer romance in when i was 18 and then he broke up with me because i went to college and i was all going off to college on the east coast thinking like we're gonna stay together we're gonna write each other and call each other and it's all gonna be great and like two weeks into college my first semester of college he, he calls me up and he breaks up with me and wow i was miserable i was just so upset like i was that thing where you wake up really early in the morning and you hear the little birds outside do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. that's so really early, sad. That was my early morning bird breakup. <laughs> and and yeah. chronologically, my second most memorable breakup was my fault. Um, college boyfriend, really sweet guy. Um, I cheated on him, so it's my fault. But then we got back together, but then he broke up with me. And he should have broken up with me. I was not prepared to be in a healthy relationship at that time. But it's still memorable because I think it has a lot of regret tied up in it, just that I hurt somebody sure. like that. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And then my third, my husband, <laughs> when we were, I laugh now because we're together, you laugh. <laughs> but like when we, when we first got together, he was rebounding and we were together for like four months that were just like fucking great and wonderful. Like I felt like everything was changing. My whole life was like, we were both in love with each other, but then he broke up with me, came as a complete surprise to me. And we spent a, a while apart before we eventually got back together. And that was another early morning bird breakup. Um, just that experience of being in bed and feeling like everything is miserable. So I only have three that I consider memorable. I've had other breakups for sure. And at the time they hurt, but like now in retrospect, they seem, you know, I, okay. But those are the three I can still get like a visceral memory off of if I, if I try Mm. to poke that wound a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of yours is, uh, breaking someone else's heart. Yeah. And one of mine is too. And Sophia, I'm wondering if you have that one too, because that's something that we don't really get on Rob's list at all. Mm. No, I never had breakups. I had unrequited love and then I got married. So that was, that's the brief. (laughs) That is a path. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So off of breakups, we're going to something a little more cheerful or a little more interesting, but well, maybe not more interesting, but a little more cheerful. We're going to now talk about the record shop in the movie championship vinyl. And what do you guys think about this shop? 
Well, it's interesting to me because in 2000, I feel like this is the time that we were moving away from this kind of shop and towards something newer and cleaner, like um, the record stores in Brooklyn, or, you know, that were a little less judgmental um, and a little more curated is mm. the other thing. Um, this was a big time for other music as a store. This was a big time for like um, rough trade records opening in the U.S. Um, so this felt like a bit of a holdover, which makes sense. It tracks. Rob is a bit of a holdover um, <laughs> to the record stores of the 90s, where it was some curmudgeonly guy at the counter <laughs> and the store is all dusty and it's chock full of stuff. There's just stuff everywhere. And maybe you can figure out the filing system and maybe you can't. And maybe the people that work there will help you or maybe they won't. <laughs> I definitely have had that experience in record stores. Nice. So you so you relate to this. This store seems familiar to you then. It's the kind of store that I would try to avoid going into. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 I do remember one store experience like that in Madison when we were in high school, I think, and I was visiting Madison and like, it's ridiculous for anybody in Madison, Wisconsin to view themselves as some kind of snob. I'm sorry, because we still (laughs) in Wisconsin. Right. But like, I wanted to buy like an ABBA record or something and they like sneered at me and I'm like, but ah, what? Yeah. So I was the, I just called this I love you guy, but with ABBA, but actually ABBA was kind of cool in the nineties. I'm sorry. It's true. After Erasure did, after Erasure did the ABBA-esque album, they were very cool. Yeah, and then Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, yes, Memorial's Wedding, huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like anyway. But yeah, this kind of, I would avoid this kind of record store too. Like I, the one I shop at now is the people are so friendly. They're definitely knowledgeable, but like they're just not judgmental about what records you buy. They want you to buy the dollar records that nobody else wants. They're yeah. like, I'm good. Somebody took that off our hands. Yay! <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And, and then also we have these, uh, so Rob also talks about like the customers at his record shop and he says, and he describes them buying these like really specific, like, I can't even remember the language he uses, like original B-sides, not something. Anyway, like very specific. Deleted <laughs> Smith singles and original underlined, not re-released uh, versions of what was it? Uh, some other artist. Yeah. Very, very good. You remember a lot more than I did. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And he, and he describes these these particular records they want to be like, fetish properties are not unlike porn. I'd feel guilty taking their money if I wasn't, well, kind of one of them. So you get like the sense of who shops there as well as who Rob is in one breath. And then we also get introduced to like um, Rob's two employees. So first we get Dick and Dick comes in and he's playing Seymour Stein by Bell and Sebastian. I really did like Bell and Sebastian at the time too. It's by just, the way, this is also a genius track choice to choose of all the Bell and Sebastian songs, choose Seymour Stein because it's written about the legendary head of Reprise Records uh, who signed the Talking Heads and Madonna and tons and tons of bands, um, all every band that you thought was cool in the late 70s and early 80s, and then tons of bands for decades. I mean, he was a big deal and Bell and Sebastian had a meeting with him and that's what that song was written about. Oh, weird. Yeah, I never knew that. That's interesting. Yeah, so he's playing, but he's playing this Bell and Sebastian. It's very gentle, kind of lulling kind of music. Later, it is referred to by Barry as sad bastard music. (laughs) Which that that (laughs) phrase really stuck with me, though. That phrase completely stuck with me over the years. But like, I just, I love Dick. He's so sweet. Like he's, he's like Rob expresses just like the vaguest interest in like um, something that he says. And he says, and some record he bought and, 
And Dick's like, I'll tape it for you. And he's like, and then Rob's like kind of trying to chew him off. Like, I don't really need it tape. And he's like, well, I'll tape it for you anyway. <laughs> like Dick's just always trying to be like, be, be like this nice guy. And yeah, Todd Luiza just plays him so well. Yeah. And then we're introduced to the polar opposite, Jack Black playing Barry. Um, he blasts into the movie, puts in Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves, and then just does this dance that's just like over the top, like showboating. Um, yeah, the most Jack Black, Jack Black you can imagine in this movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you guys have a favorite of between the two of them? Or like for me, they just exist in a perfect yin yang kind of a situation. Yeah, that's it. That's it's, it. It's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. You need them both, but neither <laughs> of them are standalone characters. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then we get like some examples of how this record shop is a little bit snooty. Like Barry totally disses this guy who comes in to buy I Just Called to Say I Love You by Stevie Wonder. We heard a little bit of that in the trailer. And then we also get a little insight into like Barry's personality, particular in this clip I'm going to play you. So I'm going to play a little clip here of the record store guys interacting with each other. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh, Ruling the Nation. kind of a new record. Excuse very. Me, in a minute. Record. Very nice, Rob. A sly declaration of new classic status slipped into a list of old safe ones. Very pussy. Excuse me, I was in, in a minute. Couldn't you be any more obvious than that, Rob? How about uh, I don't know, the Beatles? How about fucking fucking Beethoven? Track one, side one of the Fifth Symphony. How can someone who has no interest in music own a record store? <laughs> I could I could never talk to that guy. Like, yeah, Barry would just shut me out immediately. Yeah. Uh, so in a minute okay so courtney have you you've been in these conversations though oh god yes yes i have i know berries <laughs> the best thing to do is just tell them how terrible their taste is really oh, oh yeah. we'll piss them off and watch them explode <laughs> hilarious no, this this whole bravado comes from insecurity so i mean really it's it's fun to watch them explode is that mean i don't care <laughs> well Barry's mean Barry can be very mean in this movie so yes. yeah he can be very biting and and yeah like any any other things anybody wants to say about this record store culture before we move on or like well I liked this particular bit of dialogue because it's a great way to get a lot of signifiers in for people that like music and um it helps you identify who these characters are based on their taste and also kind of grounds you in what was cool at the time this is happening. Uh-huh. That's true. That's true. Like I, and yeah. And for me, yeah, again, I'm not a huge, I'm, I'm a movie nerd, but I'm not as much of a music nerd. So like, there's actually an embarrassing amount of stuff that in, that's referenced in this movie that I've not listened to, or yep. maybe I've listened to it in passing, but do you identify with Rob's taste here at all? Like, Oh, for sure. I mean, Janie Jones, The Clash is a solid first choice. I'm uh, with Barry on that never mind being hella obvious. That, that massive attack album holds up. It's great. Everybody go listen to it after this. 
Nice. Thank you. Thank you for your insight. We, we, we need you here for your expertise. Definitely. <laughs> love it. I'm blown away. I just love it. And then just since we're talking about a movie about record stores, I just really wanted to put in really quick some information about record sales, which I think is really great because I personally love playing records. Apparently, sales of records have been increasing for 16 years in a row, according to Statista.com. And 2021 had the biggest record sales since 1986, with $1 billion in sales, according to the Recording Industry Association of America. And this actually topped sales for CDs and for digital downloads. Now, like the, the sort of the other side of this, though, is that physical media sales do only make up like 11% of recorded music revenues. Like the majority of it is in streaming. But I still think it's great that records are making continuing to make such a huge comeback. Um, I love it that there's several record stores to shop to shop at in Madison, Wisconsin. We have our regular record store. And yeah, I, I, I really like the experience of a record playing a record as opposed to mm-hmm. having things digitally. It's just more meaningful to me. And I was wondering, like, how do both of you prefer to listen to music? And like, what would you buy on record versus what would you just download or get through other means? Okay, this is going to be real nerdy. So buckle up. Um, I only buy original, the original release of a record on record. And that's pre the 1980s. Everything that was everything made after about the late 70s, early 80s is mastered for digital recording. So it's mastered to sound best on a CD. And starting in the 2000s, people started mastering things to sound best as a stream or a download. Um, So they're not really doing a different mastering process, which you do have to do to get the best sound on vinyl. So unless I read that an artist and their producer did something to master for vinyl, I'm not buying their album on vinyl because it's not going to sound the best in that format. Courtney, you just started decreasing the record sales right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. No, okay. I think I think people who are going to buy a record would know something about that. Do yeah. you know, I don't know you know because, I mean? like, where do you see records now? It is in Urban Outfitters. It is in um, uh, Barnes and Noble. They sell a lot of records in bookstores. It's true. So it's true. I don't know that the people that are buying records do know a lot about the production oh. process. To be honest. Yeah, I still like to have the record, though, because like, I think, and you were talking about this in your book, also the experience of listening to a whole album side, you know, how the way it's put together and everything like, and and the attention required to listen to a record, like it's an experience more so. And it reminds me that I own it, quite frankly, if I have things digitally, I forget about them all. Oh, wow. I mean, it does, it does feel more ephemeral sometimes if it's digital. There've definitely been records I've connected with in the digital age that I have never owned a copy of and I've just streamed them endlessly. But yeah, I'm finding now as I've been working on the Indie Rock podcast, I'm finding there are entire albums that I had a CD of that I forgot existed and I'm going back (laughs) and rediscovering songs. Nice. So, yeah. So then finally we get to a scene, we get to a scene now where Rob is kind of like doing this reorganization of his record collection, maybe in response to the breakup. I don't know. And there are a lot of ways you can organize a record collection. Like Dick comes over and points out, asks him, is it alphabetical? Is it chronological? And Rob says, no, autobiographical. (laughs) And basically he has to remember. Dick's response is no fucking way. (laughs) I don't even know. I don't know what that means. Like, how would you 
Like you have to remember (laughs) kind of what point in your life you remember like hearing about that maybe or buying it, I guess. Like it's chronological based on when you heard the album and it was important in your life. And what if an album is important in more than one point in your life? That's true. I would put it in the first point. It was important. I actually like for a moment when I was watching this, I thought about like actually doing that with my records until my husband pointed out that you cannot do that with a shared record collection. And I also think he just didn't want me to take all the things off the shelf and put them on the floor i think that's probably really why he said that (laughs) yeah i mean that's fair there is something cathartic though about taking all your stuff out and looking at it and putting it up in a different order it's very nice feeling Oh, I, I agree with that 100%. And once we once I made my husband and I do this thing, we're like, I'm like, we don't listen to all these records enough. Like we need to like, listen, we need to like listen to all of them. And then after we listen to them, we're going to put them on the shelf over here. And then if we haven't listened to them all by the end of the year, then we're getting rid of whatever we didn't listen to. And so that spurred a wow. major reorganization. Like what, is, what, are, what are your records organized like? Or how do you organize your music and keep track of all of it? Now, I mean, the physical product I do have, I keep alphabetically, but all of my digital things are by mood. <laughs> like everybody wow. else, I listen to music based on my mood more than anything yeah. now. Yeah, I like that. I like that very yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah, I have mine in little sections. We've got like soundtracks, classical, country. Like we have we have like a little mini record store. So we've, and then alphabetical after that. So. My actual records, the order is just chaotic. Like it's, it makes no sense. <laughs> now we move on to the presence of Marie de Salle in the movie. And we're kind of introduced to this character. We, we hear we're outside a club and inside we hear her singing, baby, I love your way. And I'm just going to give a shout out. This is the second movie now we've covered on the podcast with a baby. I love your way appearance. Reality bites uh-huh. being the other. So oh, that's right. I forgot that. And it's the same signifier in both movies. It signifies uncoolness. Peter Frampton is uncool. <laughs> he just is. But then Except we get he's it. not. He's actually really cool. I know. I'm like, what? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but in these movies, like in this world in the 90s and this early 2000s era, he was still uncool because he was radioactive from that um, Beatles movie that he was in in the late 70s. Huh. Oh. I, yeah, I yeah, I was not aware. Thanks of for clearing Peter, that up. I'm not even sure if I was aware of Peter Frampton when these movies came out. I was just like, oh, he's the guy in Reality Bites. Like, so it's yeah, <laughs> kind of sad to admit that. My parents were not Peter Frampton listeners either. So yeah, but they get into this club though, then and like they say, I used to hate this song because Marie DeSalle has, I guess, transformed the song into something that is now cool, and or she's just really attractive. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's the. Yeah. <laughs> And Dick Barry and Rob are all musing about what it would be like to date a musician and how great it would be to be included in the liner notes, et cetera. And so can I tell you, this is one of oh, my please. favorite, yeah. my favorite moments in this movie. They're talking about this, like to have somebody write songs about you when the entire annals of the history of music are like really mean songs by men written about women they've broken up with. Cause there's so many more men to this point than women as artists so i don't think they've really thought it through it's really (laughs) hard when someone writes a song about you because if that becomes a popular song the narrative about your relationship to people forever is set in what they said you never get to like have a rebuttal it's it's rough well as you were saying them like as per your podcast my god all those yeah that happened and 
Yeah. All those murders. I mean, all those murders and those people who tried to like, you know, move on with their life. And it was, you know, yeah. Like one of the stories specifically to go back to Johnny cash is Delia's gone. And Johnny cash is like, a solid 50, 60 years after (laughs) that song was written is when he first performed it. So we're so far away from the real story of Delia. But if you know that song, it's like, I'm gonna, she's a cheating, trifling, no down, low down, no good woman. And I'm going to kill her with my submachine gun. And that song's written about a 13 year old black girl. So it's like, it's yeah. hard when someone else tells your story and takes your voice. So I think these guys did not like, it sounds romantic. It sounds not. romantic. <laughs> yeah. I wanted that too. Who didn't love a guy with a guitar like in college? Oh God. Like, yeah. said, you know, and I'm like, Oh, if they wrote a song about me, no, I love dedicated something to me. Totally. <laughs> and love no, that. I wouldn't want that now. Would not want that. No, no. So that's our first appearance by Marie DeSalle. She will come back into the movie. They encourage her to come to the record store. We will see her again. So now I wanted to talk a little bit about Rob and Laura's actual breakup, like what has gone on. Like we see Laura come back to the house to pick up some stuff and Rob has stayed behind on purpose so he can encounter her, which again, kind of relatable, but yeah. Total dick move also though. Yep. Yep. So selfish. And he's trying to find out like why they broke up. I mean, everybody wants closure though. And her explanation is, you're the same person you used to be, and I'm not. You used to talk about the future. Now you don't even do that. So it's kind of Laura's a growing person, kind of mature, and she views him as stagnant, which I think what we find out about Rob in the movie kind of is bared out. Yeah, absolutely. But then we find out that Laura has quickly moved on to another guy from their mutual friend Liz played by Joan Cusack, who says she doesn't think much about this Ian guy. And then John Cusack's like, what fucking Ian guy. And as soon as he figures out who this guy is, it was played by Tim Robbins. It's a neighbor who lives upstairs. He begins to imagine Laura and Ian having sex. And that's a really hilarious sequence of even Kyla <laughs> and Tim Robbins, like having this ridiculous, like, I don't know, new age enigmas video kind of sex or whatever it's very like the sex we imagine sting and tree styler having (laughs) like is this tantric sex i don't know but you're definitely doing something and it's like he says no woman in the history of the world is having better sex than the sex you are having with ian in my head and I don't, I've never really dwelled on that part of it. They say that guys tend to get more jealous about sexual things and women get more jealous about emotional things. And like, while I don't think that's entirely true for me, like I, I would cannot imagine just sitting in bed and like thinking about what the other people having sex is like, but maybe it's relatable to other people. I don't know. I don't know. It makes me feel like he doesn't really see her as a complete human being. There are all these moments where like, the night of the breakup, he's like, just stay, just stay one more night. And the implication is, and we'll have sex. And as if that will somehow change her mind. And now it's like his threshold of, are they really broken up? Is has she had sex with Ian? And Mm. it's just, it feels very like he sees her as, he keeps talking about her as a receptacle for sex and not like a partner or Mm. somebody who he enjoys. And we get to a point later on where he starts talking about her in a more emotional way and about like their intellectual life together. But here it's just like, this is his go-to while he's hurt. Mm. That's true. It's like a very territorial kind of a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. 
And like Liz, um, the friend then character played by Liz is at first sympathetic to Rob, but then we get this great scene where Joan Cusack bursts in the record store, into the record store and says, Hey Rob, you fucking asshole. It's so good too. She delivers that line so well. (laughs) Yeah. Much better than I just did, but I mostly didn't want to yell at people when they're in their cars listening to our podcast, but, (laughs) but yeah, like it's, it's great. And, um, and and this leads into Rob telling us what he did wrong to Laura, that he wasn't just this, this innocent victim. And I'm not going to go over the whole list, but he did, he did bad stuff such as cheating on her. And Rob is not the innocent here, probably to nobody's surprise. But yeah. we also find out then through this process, how Rob and Laura actually met. He was DJing. She came to his DJ show. He made her a tape. And then he describes their relationship. She didn't make me miserable or anxious or ill at ease. And you know, it sounds boring, but it wasn't. It wasn't spectacular either. It was just good, but really good. And yeah, like, uh, that sounds like a healthy relationship, basically. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have been ill at ease at the beginning of some, um, probably most of my relationships for a period of time, but you don't want that to persist. You don't want that that to be your whole relationship. Right. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like based on the past breakups that Rob tells us about, he doesn't know that much about having or maintaining a healthy connection with someone. Yeah. So he feels ill at ease whenever he's got that. I wonder how old he's supposed to be. I've always wondered. Early 30s, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's the impression I also get. Or maybe maybe late 20s, but early 30s. Yeah. Probably probably more like it. Yeah. Okay. So now Rob gets this idea to track down his all time breakup list women because he asks himself the question, why am I doomed to be left? And um, part of we, we mentioned, you mentioned this earlier, Courtney, part of this happens because he has this sort of mentor character in his head played by Bruce Springsteen, which, which reminded me of um, Elvis in true romance, to be honest, which it could have been influenced by that, even yeah. the novel, because that came out in 93, but I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this guy mentor figure, basically. Um, (laughs) I do not personally have a mentor figure. I don't know if all guys do, but I don't. I definitely don't have a music superstar talking to me in my head. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. I feel like some guys might, though. I feel like some guys might have movie stars or rock stars that, like, they imagine giving them advice. Because I've seen it in enough media now that I feel like this might be a thing. And now I want to quiz all the guys I know about this. Interesting. You know, if I go ask my husband that, he's going to look at me like I've lost my mind. He's going to be like, what the hell are you talking <laughs> You just need to find the right kind of guy to ask this question to. Yeah. I think that Jennifer is on to something here. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he uh, uh, this one of my favorite scenes in the whole thing, though, is when he tries to find out what happened to Allison Ashmore. And he calls up Allison Ashmore as like the childhood home number of this his first like middle school girlfriend. And he finds out that he she married Kevin Bannister. And the mom describes Kevin Bannister as being her first boyfriend. And then Rob's like trying to argue with the mother, like, actually, technically, I was the first boyfriend. <laughs> and then she's like, well, that's very nice. Okay, then. Okay, then, Bob, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, bye. Yeah, yeah, this is a real can't talk to a psycho like a normal human being. <laughs> that mom character is just like the tiniest role, but she's like one of the funniest parts of the whole movie for me. I love that we don't even see grown-up Allison Ashmore. It is straight up just the mom shutting him down. It's really funny. 
And he's just oblivious. That's the Rob's whole personality in this entire process is one of obliviousness, which we Ugh. see in a much more tragic I... way with Penny. Hardaway. Yeah, very tragic. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to talk about that, Soph, or introduce that? Sure. So then he meets up with Penny, and looks like they're having a good time. And then he asks why she slept with the next guy, and Penny's like. I wanted to sleep with you one day, but not when I was 16. You know, when you broke up with me, you broke up with me because I was, as your charming expression, tight. I cried and I cried and I hated you. And when that little shitbag asked me out and I was too tired to fight him off, it wasn't rape because I said, okay, but it wasn't far off. And now you want to have a little chat about rejection? Well, fuck you, Rob. Yeah, I like, like she tells him to fuck off. He and then she that. just leaves. Yeah. And, yeah. and yep. And this hit <laughs> this hit hard this time. When I was listening I to agree. Yeah. Yeah. When I was listening to her story this time, I was like so moved for her and cared so much about yeah. her. And so it was yeah. like really jarring this time when Rob just goes right into being like, Oh, yeah. he's yes. right. I broke up with her. I rejected her. And yeah. he's just happy because he's the one who yeah. broke up. He doesn't even take a pause to be like, oh, wait, she said she was kind of raped. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. 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 It, yeah, it was very icky this time. Like, very you cannot icky. get away with that these days. And it's wild to me that there was a time that that was like a comedic beat. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess it's still a dark comedic beat because it like speaks to sort of a truth about people who are that self-absorbed. You know, but it, it's it's dark mm-hmm. comedy now. It's like yeah, it's um, it does not in any way make Rob look good or relatable. It makes him look like an asshole. Yeah, it makes him very uh-huh. icky. It makes it really hard to root for him. This whole this whole part of the movie makes it really hard to root for him. Everything while he's revisiting exes is just terrible. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Penny Hardwick, I wish you well. I like yeah, I felt Penny. I felt for her so much. I wanted to know what happened to her next. Anyway. Penny Hardwick grew up to be really cool. She's a film critic. Like yeah. Penny Hardwick is doing great. I'm glad she got to have her cathartic moment of closure with Rob. That was good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. I just hope like didn't hurt her too much. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I have like very intense feelings about this minor character now. Okay. Well, then Rob goes on to uh, Sarah. This was the rebound girl, and then. She's just kind of a sad character, and and yeah, and she's trying end, to she's trying to get together with him again. Like she's depressed, yeah. or or something's yeah. going on with her, and like she's like yeah. she's kind of inquiring about his love life. Yeah, she wants to go back there, and he's like, no. And then he meets up with Charlie. She's awful. <laughs> she is awful. That's not incorrect. Yeah, I mean, she's awful in a way. Like, I don't know. Like, to the right people, I suppose she's not awful. She's just having these, like, posh dinner parties where everybody's just, like, talking about, like, impressive things to impress each other. And, like, he he says the line of dialogue, Charlie's awful. And on the one hand, sure, she seems like she'd be a little bit annoying. But on the other hand, he is the one who is inserting himself into her universe under, like, false pretenses. Because she she right away calls him on his shit. When he calls her up on the phone, (laughs) she's like, I've been getting all these guys calling me and they want to, like, go over, like, what happened in the past. Like, you know, and she says, like, are you in or are you out? She wants to know if he actually wants to engage with her as a friend, be in her life in a real way. Or is this just, like, one of those things? And she calls him on it. She figures it out. And then when when he finally is like, yeah, like, what happened? Why'd you break up with me? She's like, I knew it. I knew it. And she's like, I I, got to respect her for that because she saw through him. So she might be awful in certain ways. And then he's so like, you know, 
And he's like, well, tell me, why did you break up with me? And then when she tells him the truth, what yeah. her feelings were about, he's like, "What? don't don't hold back. Like, he can't take it. It's yeah. like, well, take a note. <laughs> Write that down, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I think Catherine Zeta-Jones' turn as this character is great, though. So, Oh, my she's gosh. Perfect. Her acting. She's perfectly cast. I'm so glad she played it. I think... What Rob says she's awful. I also think she's awful because she's not my cup of tea. But I think what he's realizing is not that she's awful, but that they were never compatible. There's no reason he should have felt so small next to her or like mm-hmm. she was this yeah. great person who was beyond him. All the things you were talking about before, Jen, that that's yeah. all kind of bullshit is the realization he's having. Yeah, he put her on a pedestal. Okay, so shall we begin the spoiler section? Yes, ma'am. Okay, we're going to begin the spoiler section now. And from now on, you can talk about anything that happens in the entire course of the movie. If you have not seen High Fidelity, please stop listening now if you don't want to be spoiled. So, um, yeah, we we continue with the Laura and Rob breakup cycle. Rob is continuing to obsess about whether Laura has had sex with Ian. At one point, she says they haven't had sex yet. And and yet becomes a big deal. Like there's like mm-hmm. he, Rob goes into work and he's having this entire conversation with his coworkers about what would it mean if somebody said to you they hadn't seen Evil Dead two yet? Yes. Yeah. So tragic. <laughs> so tragic. <laughs> to which which Jack Black totally misses the point. Um, he's just yeah, like I would think he, I would think you were like some kind of a moron or something. Like he just because Evil Dead's a great movie. <laughs> like although but, that is applicable to sex. If you haven't had it yet, you must be a moron. It's great. It's really fun. Why wouldn't you do it? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but this like parsing of language is just like very like relatable to me because like it's kind of a bad habit uh, to like go through like somebody's words and try to figure out what do they actually mean? And I'm and I'm realizing how bad that habit is and I'm trying to break it now. And I think so many people do that. Like instead of just like asking somebody a straight question, they're like, I'm going to determine this person's inner state by, you know, obsessing over word choice. Yeah, that you're right. That is a terrible habit. And so many people in relationships of any sort stay mm-hmm. in that habit. <laughs> communication yeah. is hard. Yeah. And I think when we have so much text-based communication now too, it becomes even harder in a lot of ways. For sure. You're not getting tone of voice anymore. So these words are all so important and can so easily be misinterpreted. So <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to make a new resolution not to do that shit anymore. But yeah, the yet conversation, very relatable to me. So when he finds out, when Rob also then finds out that she hasn't had sex yet with Ian, he is so happy. And We Are the Champions plays on the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, like you said, Courtney, this is his interest here. He's seeing Laura more as like a right. sexual thing right now. And he goes mm-hmm. right out and hooks up with Marie DeSalle. Which is and- the most baffling thing in the world to me. You think you'd <laughs> want to be a saint. If you're fighting this hard to get somebody back, you'd think you'd want to walk right. the line. That's interesting. He's so douchey. Intuitively, though, that made sense to me. I don't really know why, but intuitively, I understood. I kind of was like, yeah, that makes sense that this guy would do that. I don't really know why. Maybe he wants to win or something. Like, he's winning because he's having sex first. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. I just think Rob is selfish and thoughtless. Yeah, I think that. You're absolutely (laughs) right. He gets to hook up with the musician. And then when they part ways, immediately he says, yet he, she hasn't slept with him yet. And he goes on again in these. I think Marie DeSalle's on the same boat there, though. She's not acting like she's heartbroken about Rob in any way, shape or form. Yeah, she doesn't care. (laughs) 
she's just like i need some sex too yeah like uh yeah. i just got broken up with two let's do this thing and let's not drag it out like you and that sarah chick so <laughs> <laughs> she's very clear like the whole speech she gives about sex is very clear she's setting a boundary with him yeah and then um so this in the marie de Sal interaction that we have this quote come up uh when he's talking to marie de Sal. What really matters is what you like, not what you are like. Books, records, films, these things matter. So I don't want to go into too much depth on this, but like fundamentally, do you agree or disagree with this? This is another one that's a standout quote from the book that I've had quoted to me ad nauseum by men. Um, And I don't think that it's that these things matter. I think it's that these things are a shorthand for understanding people. The stuff you own is not the thing about you that matters, though, is my short answer. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Sophia? So uh, I disagree, in short. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I I think I know part of the reason for your answer, because I know you and Greg don't have, like, a lot of different tastes in common, but, like, you're happily married. Nope, we do not like the same music at all, like, hardly any. There's a few that we agree on, and, I mean, it's a bummer. I'm like, go to a concert with me! And he's like, uh, (laughs) what are we listening to? (laughs) And I'm going to come down right in the middle, and I'm going to say it matters a little, because... Um, I love that my husband and I have the same favorite rom-com, which is When Harry Met Sally. And I love that he will watch every single movie that we've done for this podcast with me. And he won't like, and and he never like acts like it's a chore or anything. Like we watched Somewhere in Time the other day for a future episode and he was like into the romance. And so I was like, okay, yes. So I I like, I like a guy who likes some of the stuff I like. And I don't, it would be hard to relate to somebody who was like, never wanted to watch a rom-com for example you know and and i'll and i'll like when i i will be expanded by his taste though i don't have i don't like all of the stuff he likes automatically but i've gotten more into like noir and samurai movies because of him so yeah Uh uh-huh i think that's great i think the whole idea is find somebody who's enough like you that you have common ground but not the same as you because a part of the fun of getting to know somebody is being introduced to their their things that they like oh yeah yeah, our second date, we Lee and I both brought like pile of books that we liked to sh- to give each Aww, other. <laughs> that is adorable. I love I it so love much. That. Yay, yay. Okay, so at this point now, after this Marie de Salle stuff, Rob then finds out that Laura has now slept with Ian, and he has a meltdown, and he's outside the house in the rain. He's in the rain a lot in this movie. A lot <laughs> in the rain. I'm like, what's yeah. the symbolism here? I'm like, this is a little heavy-handed. No, <laughs> he's crying in his heart. I don't know, man. Crying in his heart, like, three times. Like, okay. <laughs> and now he's on a freaking payphone. Hello, payphones in movies. I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even think about that. It's true. He's on a payphone. <laughs> Send a payphone outside Ian's apartment, calling repeatedly. Uh, you, I love it that you also then get to see Ian. He's like he's portrayed as Tim Robbins portrays him as this new age guy who like really does not come by his zen naturally because he's getting really pissed off by these phone calls. But then you see him do these like forceful uh-huh. like kind of meditative postures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also love getting to see Tim Robbins with a ponytail. That's a nice treat. <laughs> oh god, and that like kind of flowy, gauzy. Yes. Yeah. Oh man. They make so him great. look so unappealing in this movie. It's really, it's really something to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. With the rings and the, yeah. And I probably would actually like his food cause he's probably a vegetarian, but um, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then like, we just get some quick plot developments. We have Dick, the mild mannered record store employee has met a girl, Anna played by Sarah Gilbert and they're starting okay. to date. 
One thing I want to say about that is we see them at the record store and he is like talking to her, trying to introduce music to her. And it's supposed to be sweet and nice, but I don't know. I kind of get the vibe of like, there were a lot of guys that tried to tell me like what I should like, or, you know, if you Mm. like this, then there's something even cooler that's this. And it's not Mm. played condescendingly, which is a credit to the actor. But it's a little yeah. condescending, and I don't like it. Also, Sarah Gilbert looks so young in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she for sure. But I think they do look sweet when you see them hugging later. So, like, I have, I have, yeah. I have hopes to their little relationship. Yeah. And then Barry has managed to join a band, despite not knowing any <laughs> instrument. And the I band is called Sonic Death Monkey, which is just terrifying. But you know what? That was actually like lush, like like lush shampoo and body wash and stuff like that company. They had a body wash called Sonic Death Monkey after this movie came out. And it was the best thing ever. They don't make it anymore. It's, it, it like smelled like chocolate and kind of bananas and stuff. It was great. Anyway, Whoa, that's, that's, that's adorable. My, that's my weird association. I used that for years. Anyway, and then we have another plot development where they use these two shoplifting skater kids um, they're caught shoplifting in the store, but then we find out that they formed a band called the Kinky Wizards, and Rob likes their music so much that he decides he's going to produce their album. So that's so. Stuff. I just want to say something about the Kinky Wizards. Also, I was sure. really excited for them based on the stuff that they shoplifted and wanted to sound like, or <laughs> that influenced them. And the actual <laughs> music is absolutely terrible. <laughs> like, ugh. Unfortunately, I think that was like a real band too that they got to oh. like make that music. I can't remember what the band name was. Sorry, I should have written it down. But like, yeah, not not good, not yeah. a hit. <laughs> okay, now we get the big plot development that shifts everything around, and Rob is really kind of a lucky guy in this case because Laura's dad dies, and because Laura's dad liked Rob, he is invited to the funeral. And yeah, this is interesting to me. Like, this is a, an interesting dynamic, this whole thing where he's at the funeral and her mom doesn't know they broke up or something. It just feels really uncomfortable. Like, Laura hasn't committed to the breakup, and this is the first kind of right. glimpse we get of that. Yeah. And I know that, like, emotions get so high around grieving. Mm-hmm. She was already mm-hmm. grieving for this relationship, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, I don't know. This is where things just become a lot for Laura. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And what ends up happening is that Laura, she's too tired. She says she's basically too tired to be broken up with him. She says, I'm not, I'm too tired not to be with you is what she says to Rob. I really hate that. Like, I really hate the idea that I'm just too worn down to not be with this person. That's hmm. depressing to me. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that a little bit. I can see that. Yeah. I can also understand that like when your life is in flux, um, when something like this happens, there's something to be said for comfort. Yeah. 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 Hmm. And I've seen people remain in situations that are comfortable. Oh yeah. Probably get out of, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but so much of the rest of their life is in flux that like they aren't able to. So it is relatable, if not perhaps uplifting. I agree. I agree. I, I, yes, same. Listening to it this time, I was like, I can't believe he takes that answer and isn't like, what? You know, <laughs> that's how poorly you think of me. Like, I'll just take oh, he, it. Like, oh, he knows he's lucky so, at this point. He does know he's lucky. But right before this, we do hear him kind of come to a realization. Yeah. You know, in the rain again. He, he's also in the rain. In the so. rain again. 
also this is one of the best music moments in the movie it's bob dylan most of the time playing and it's really just mournful and beautiful yeah and sophia you're gonna you're gonna tell us what he says then you're you're yeah this is what rob says in the rain with bob dylan I can see now I never really committed to Laura. I always had one foot out the door and that prevented me from doing a lot of things like thinking about the future. I guess it made more sense to commit to nothing, keeping my options open. And that's suicide by tiny, tiny increments. Amen. <laughs> so I, finally, the most little... self-aware thing Rob says yep. to, to this point in the movie. And it's like, yep. the, I think it's the deepest thing that's said mm-hmm. in the in the movie and the book in general. It's just because there's such a truth to it. Like, it is appealing, this idea of keeping your options open and like not shutting off possibility. But like, if you don't make a decision, if you don't say yes to something, it is like suicide. It is like, like, I think for years I had a hard time choosing career paths because of this very thing. I'm trying mm-hmm. to keep my options open. And then you end up with no career, which is kind mm-hmm. of where I am right now. I'm starting a career like in my 40s, right? And fortunately, I was never like that with love. But like, yeah, yeah, you got to choose things. You got to just go for it sometimes. Anyway, that's Jennifer's little lecture to add on to that. <laughs> life advice. Jennifer's life advice. I actually do um, that on Facebook. That's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. But I, I, I agree. I just have to say, I just agree with this quote and I, I love it. And it's probably like makes so much else about the movie that, you know, didn't age as well. But this aged really well, I thought. And then, like, as Laura's saying she's too tired not to be with you, she gets Rob to have sex with her in the car so she can feel something other than pain. And, yeah, funeral sex. Yeah. Yeah. It, make, it makes sense. But, um, yeah, then they get back together. And they're apparently they're happy. Their relationship's going well. We get a little montage of that. And, and everything's going well until this woman named Caroline comes into the store and she writes a music column. And she's like, I don't know, hipster catnip or something. <laughs> I have a real problem with their little meet cute scene where she's like, Oh, is this Stereo Lab? I've never heard this one. That song was hella popular if you knew Stereo Lab well enough to know that was them. They oh. ended so many concerts mm. with that song. Was she supposed to be playing stupid on purpose? If so, thanks. I hate it. That is such a good point. Mm. I did not think about that before. Mm. But yeah, she literally writes a music column. Come on. Yeah, yeah. she should know the song. Like, that is. I hated it. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm agree. Uh, yeah. You're completely right. And I just never noticed it before, but you're completely right. Yeah. Yep. But um, anyway, this character's kind of thrown in to kind of test Rob, I guess, in the narrative. And Rob is into her and he starts making her a tape. And Laura sees him and, and she, you see mm-hmm. on her face, she's like, oh, I know what yep. shit is up here. <laughs> yep. But then Rob starts to have more realizations and he asks um, Laura to meet him at a coffee shop or, or a bar. I don't know which, but he proposes to her. So we're going to listen to Rob's <laughs> proposal really quick. All right. What are you going to talk to me about? Um, I'm going to talk to you about whether or not you want to get married to me. <laughs> I'm serious. Yes, I know. Thanks a bunch. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is it- Two days ago, you were making tapes for that girl from the reader. Yeah. Well, forgive me if I don't think of you as the world's safest bet. <laughs> what brought all this on? I don't know. I'm just sick of thinking about it all the time. About what? This stuff. Love and 
settling down and marriage, you know. I want to think about something else. I changed my mind. That's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. I do. I will. Just shut up, please. I'm just trying to explain, okay? That other girl or other women, whatever. I mean, I was thinking that they're just fantasies. You know? And they always seem really great because there's never any problems. And if there are, they're cute problems. Like, you know, we bought each other the same Christmas present. Or she wants to go see a movie that I've already seen, you know? And then I come home. And you and I have real problems, and you don't even want to see the movie. I want to see, period. And there's no lingerie. And I have lingerie. Oh, yes, you do. You have great lingerie, but you also have the cotton underwear that's been washed a thousand times, and it's hanging on the thing. And, and they have it, too. It's just I don't have to see it because it's not the fantasy. Do you understand? I'm tired of the fantasy because it doesn't really exist. And there are never really any surprises, and it never really... Delivers? Delivers. Right. I'm tired of it. And I'm tired of everything else for that matter. But I don't ever seem to get tired of you. So. I think I know what you mean. But were you really expecting me to say yes? I don't know. I didn't think about it really. I thought asking was the important part. Well, you've asked. Thank you. Not the worst proposal, but certainly not the best. Uh, no, the proposal's no. bad. The proposal's bad, but the conversation is great. Yeah. I mean, like, way to grow up, Rob, finally. You're 30-something. Um <laughs> Welcome to where everyone else has been already. Um, so that's great. Like we see growth in Rob, but I also really like their relationship is a lot of fun. Like he's like, you want to marry me? And she laughs at him and he's like, I'm serious. And she's like, I know. And he's like, that's a fucking lie. Like that's a fantastic like relationship to me. Just, just the honesty. And, yeah. Yeah. I love how real she is. And I love how not taking shit yeah. she is. I am still a little mystified that she would be with him though. You know, but, 100%. Yeah. I don't know. Do you guys mm-hmm. think like this? We usually ask this later in the show, but do you guys think they will work out in the end? What yeah, is your impression? I do. Yeah. Like I, I would have said no up to this point because it seemed so on the surface because we were hearing Rob's point of view. This is a scene where it shifts to be the couple's point of view and yeah. you get to see how they work together and it, it feels like it does work. Yeah, I think they will work out. I think at least she has seen something in him at some point in their relationship. Like she's, he's growing, you know, and pretty much what Courtney said. It's, it's got potential. I'm not going to rule out a midlife crisis or Laura just having a similar thing, but not quite a midlife crisis, but just deciding she could do better. But yeah, beyond that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, (laughs) Laura has displayed the proclivity to go for an Ian. So (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyway, we we come to the end scene, and that's this record release party for the Skater Boys record. And Jack Black's band, Sonic Death Monkey, which has been renamed several times, is the performer at this party as well. And they sing "Let's Get It On," which I, Jack Black really does that song justice. I feel like, but oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. He did a great job. 
And then finally, after this party where everybody's having fun and mixing with each other, we get Rob sitting amongst his records again, and he's in the process of making a mixtape for Laura. So I'm going to read the quote he says about making a tape. The making of a great compilation tape, like breaking up, is hard to do and takes ages longer than it might seem. You got to kick it off with a killer to grab attention. Then you got to take it up a notch, but you don't want to blow your wad. So then you got to cool it off a notch. There are a lot of rules. Anyway, I've started to make a tape in my head for Laura, full of stuff she'd like, full of stuff that'd make her happy. For the first time, I can see how that's done. And yeah, I like I like that. I'm, I'm, yep. I'm sorry yeah. it took you a while, Rob, but you're you're there. You're getting there. So yeah. <laughs> hey, yep. Yeah. This this little monologue also harkens back to in the book. There's a lot of conversation about the rules of making mixtapes, and there are a lot of rules, and we don't see that a lot. Like he makes the tapes, and it's a plot point here and there. But it, this is a really fun and interesting, and actually really vulnerable way to get into that conversation with this character for a minute. Mm. I loved it. Do you do you have any rules for yourself for making mixtapes, like or like? Do you still I mean, do that, make playlists and compilations regularly? Yeah, I still make playlists regularly. I don't really make them for other people as much anymore. Like in your 40s, I feel like that calms way down. <laughs> um, but I make I would make them when I worked at Refinery29 for ideas or themes or whatever. Um, yeah. And there are rules. Like you don't want to repeat artists. You want to like make it feel varied so people don't feel like they're listening to a different version of the same song over and over again. You want to have songs people know and like mixed in with new stuff that you like that's sort of like the stuff they like so they can find new artists. You want it to be approachable, really. Yeah, those are all very good rules. I like it. Okay, so like, yeah, really quick, let's move on then. Like, um, anybody, actually, any final thoughts about the movie before we move on to like things that are related to the movie? I mean, I was just really relieved that Rob managed to pull it together and acknowledge his man-childness in the end because you get that moment. You just get that little hint of this could work. He could be an adult and be in a relationship without thinking it's, you know, boring. Yeah. 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 So that redemption is nice. Now let's talk about the soundtrack just a little bit. Like, um, what do you think about this soundtrack, Courtney? Because you were saying like not a lot of rom-coms have great soundtracks, but were you considering this as a rom-com when you said that? Or was it more like a... Okay. Oh, no, this is definitely a a comedy. It's definitely a romantic comedy. Um, I think this, it shows that there were four screenwriters and they all (laughs) had input into the music because it's really all over the place. Like there's not a cohesive thread here. This was something I remember talking about in depth when the um, album, I mean, when the movie came out, because it doesn't totally make sense. Mm. Um, Like this Elvis Costello song, Shipbuilding, is beautiful, but it's chosen for the mood of the song, which is very dark and brooding. It's a song about striking British workers, literally building ships (laughs) in the 1930s. It's like about a real thing um that's not about relationships whatsoever Uh and there are all these weird um indie rock from the 90s bands like smog and royal trucks stereo lab um 
these are all kind of signifiers, beta band, of course, which is a great scene when they play Dry the Rain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are signifiers to people about like the underground hipness of the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. But it's super weird to lay some of them next to like Stevie Wonder and Bob Dylan. Um, yeah. And I love John Wesley Harding, whose song I'm Wrong About Everything is on this. And if you'd only like go discover one thing that you've never heard before you listen to the soundtrack, that should be it. His voice is really great. He's a great pop songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I, I had this soundtrack. I was burned CD though at the time. I didn't buy it. Somebody burned it. Yeah. Me, so yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I did listen to it a lot. Like it is for me, like the only cohesiveness is there are a few at least songs about breakups on it. So like it is trying to make some effort, like who loves the sun mm-hmm. most of the time you're going to miss me. Like there's, I, there might be more that I'm not thinking about right now, but. Uh, I mean, yes, I definitely see that. It's just the choices of who did the songs and what the songs are, are feel yeah. a little off to me. Like there's not a through line. Sure. The other sure. thing here is there's one woman and that's it. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, there's is, a female vocalist in Stereo Lab too, in fairness. So I guess there's two women. <laughs> yeah. That's it. I mean, with the personalities of these record store clerks, uh, I guess we probably couldn't expect much more, but yeah. 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 <laughs> it's just yeah. worth noting. That. Yeah, definitely worth noting. So the soundtrack does have a few breakup songs, maybe not full of them, but there's some breakup songs on it. And I just wanted to really quickly give some favorite breakup songs. So I'm going to give mine first, which are probably really embarrassing. But um, the breakup songs, I have a few different eras. My my 90s breakup songs when I was first dating, the Xanadu soundtrack, for some reason, I think it's probably, I love Olivia, Olivia Newton-John and ELO both really speak to me. Like okay. ELO, is, ELO is the mood for a breakup for me. It's very nostalgic and like, it just it just makes you want to collapse into a pile of nostalgia. And then yeah. Olivia Newton-John always felt like my friend in a way. I don't know why. Aww. And a couple of her songs, um, "A Little More Love" and "Not Going to Be the One," are just like specifically breakup songs. I would listen to those a lot. Please, Mister Please. Okay, I yeah, unapologetic <laughs> lover of Olivia Newton-John right here. Yes. And then and then I also liked a lot of Abbott that time in my life. So knowing me, knowing you, my love, my life, like this obscure little Abbott song. Listen to them mm. a lot. But then I went into like a early 2000s breakup thing with Untouchable Face. Um, either version of Nothing Compares to You, doesn't matter. A little later after that still, like I started listening to like new age type stuff about like letting go of your expectations and stuff like that. That's when I lived in Portland. So there's this song called Don't Be Afraid of Letting Go by Neaton Sawney. <laughs> and I would play that like on repeat and I'd just be like, you got to let go. You got to be spiritual and stuff and get over this shit. Yeah, but these days it's it's very Nina Simone, Patsy Cline for me. But like, I always yeah. like to listen to music mm. that like kind of feels like the vocalist understands pain and is a good mm-hmm. person and kind of like. But and I, I like an edge of happiness too. I can't do any of this Billy Holiday stuff, man. <laughs> I feel like I have two moods when it comes to breakup songs. Either I am pissed off about it and the songs Ooh. are pissed, or I am wallowing and they are just like dramatically sad songs Mm. so like pissed off songs i really love all of fiona apple all of lily allen um there's a song by slow club called never look back that i love um kings of convenience love is no big truth (laughs) i love it when i'm like really over it and my like sad songs are the sundays here's where the story ends um Mm. rye 
Rai Rai and Robin, Never Will Be Mine, um, Vice to Limit to Your Love, stuff mm-hmm. like that that's just like, and obviously everything from Wish and Disintegration by The Cure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Cure. Sure. I think Cure would be too much for me. Like Billie Holiday, it would be too much. I can't lean too far into it. I have to like listen to like a Patsy Cline CD where mm-hmm. one day she's talking about seven lonely days and like, I love you so much, it hurts me. And then the next minute she's got back in baby's arms. I need to yeah. be lifted up a little bit. Just like, yeah. So we had, I asked this on Twitter and Facebook as well. And so we had mm-hmm. some responses to favorite breakup songs and we can comment on them if you like. So the Film War podcast at The Film War on Twitter said, there's only one acceptable answer to this question, and that is Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. The beta band ain't bad either, though. So Rumors <laughs> right. as a breakup CD. No, because it tells <laughs> it tells the story from all different sides. First of all, that's two different breakups. And second of all, four different people. Like you <laughs> on Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, you get to pick one. You are either Stevie mm-hmm. or you're Christine or you're Lindsay. Mm-hmm. And that's it. You don't get to identify with the whole album. <laughs> I like it. I like that we have a take on this. Fantastic. Very good. Okay, so the I Finally Watched podcast, at Finally Watched on Twitter, said that they are married now and haven't been broken up within a long time. But back in the day, 80s rock ballads used to be my go-to. November Rain by Guns N' Roses was a big one. And then they also <laughs> added that the movies 500 Days of Summer and Swingers from 1996 helped them during breakups. So, All right, a dude wrote that. So, <laughs> but I, 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 I super cute. relate to the movies, though. I super relate to watching movies to help you with a breakup, though. Like I said, High Fidelity yeah. was like a go-to for me too. So, but I don't know, November Rain. I, I could. It's I very could, dramatic, so I can endorse that. <laughs> I can endorse the drama. Okay, and then Soundtrack Your Life podcast at Soundtrack underscore Your responded with a GIF. Okay, so I don't. I'm still going to read it, though. The gift said, I know whenever I think emo, I think dashboard confessional. So so a millennial wrote that. <laughs> Courtney's, Courtney is totally reviewing all your picks, everybody. I oh, love yeah. It. I love this energy. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep the Barry energy going during this segment. <laughs> I, I love okay. it. I love it. And then the 80s movie podcast at the 80s movie pod on Twitter says they haven't experienced a breakup since the pre 9-11 days. So they were listening to Amy Mann, Tears for Fears, Echo and the Bunny Man, The Cure, Susie and the Banshees and other Moody's moody 80s music. This podcast is my soulmate. I need to subscribe <laughs> immediately. Very nice. Very nice. I'm sure you'll be happy to hear that. And then two hosts from the Slumber Party Cinema podcast responded at SP Cinema Club. Kate says, depends on the breakup. This most recent one has been Florence and the Machines, King, oh, yeah. Halsey's Lilith, Ashniko's Deal With It, and Dua Lipa's We're Good, depending on the mood. Okay, I love this. It's not what I would do, but it's very, it maybe is actually. This is the uh, younger generation version of angry, pissed off music. Like <laughs> this is, I do not give a fuck music. And I highly endorse that. That's a very healthy way to deal with your breakup. <laughs> very good. And then Katie from Summer Party Cinema said, in my early 20s, it was the Con album by Tegan and Sarah. That is a great breakup album. Yes, 100%. Katie <laughs> endorsed, endorsed. And then finally, our friend, Sophia, my friend, and film and music connoisseur, Karen Carlson Snyder, uh, she really showed she understood the assignment because she gave us her top five. So <laughs> Nice. <laughs> number one, I Don't Want to Get Over You by The Magnetic Fields. Mm-hmm. Number two, Someone Like You by Adele. Yeah. 
Number three, Against All Odds by Phil Collins. Perfect. Number four, Untouchable Face by Ani DeFranco. Yes, that's one of mine. And number five, Sorrow by The National. And then finally, an honorable mention to Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now by The Smiths. (laughs) I can't believe it took us this long for anybody to mention The National or The Smiths, first of all. (laughs) This Magnetic field song is perfect. Um, Adele, Phil Collins. This is a beautiful list. I, I think... Good job, Karen. Good job. Karen knows what's up. She okay, does. I've got one song that I would sing when I was feeling like, I love this person. They don't love me. Um, love will come to you, the Indigo Girls. Played that oh. on yeah, that's a good sad song. Okay, very good. I like. I love all these choices. We've got a lot more. We've got a lot of possibilities. If we wanted to make a compilation tape now, we could look look at all these songs and try to put them together in a great order. Ooh. Wow, so that would be really sad. <laughs> really sad. <laughs> Finally, I want to talk about the 2020 TV adaptation of High Fidelity. And I will admit that I had only watched like an episode and a half before this podcast. And I, at the time when I watched it, it like didn't vibe with me because I think I was wanting it to be like my memories of the movie. But then I went, uh, but then I went back and I, I watched the whole series this time and I was really enjoying it. And now like you, Courtney, yeah. I'm like, why didn't they renew it? And sadly, the reason they probably didn't renew it is because people like me who watched an episode and a half and were like, eh, I don't know. Or maybe yeah. it's just because streaming services never commit enough time and money into some of their best shows. Like, I think that's also true. There's also the tendency to, you know, undercut creators of color and think that they're not going to find an audience, not give them as much resources, blah, blah, blah. One thing we didn't discuss about the TV show, I think, um, is that Zoe Kravitz did it because she was watching all of her mom's movies and saw this. And like, that's the only reason because of um, Lisa Binet that she came across it and decided she wanted to reboot it as a gender swapped um, concept. That is awesome. I love that. That's like sweet. It's, I, I think it's so great. Like Lisa doesn't get enough in this movie. The character in the book is a bit more like fleshed out and they kind of cut her down in the movie. Um, okay. So I love this for Zoe that she's like, I don't want to be this small part. I want to be uh-huh. Rob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's really yeah. the only meaningful way I think you could have remade this series. This is a series oh. too. Like we don't yes. need another dude telling the story. We want the w- woman telling the story. And in this TV show, um, the two record store workers, one of them is another woman of color. Divine Joy Randolph uh-huh. plays the Barry role, which Sharice, I believe is her name. Sharice. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sharice. And then David H. Holmes uh, plays the Dick role, basically. But he's not very much like Dick. But he's one yeah. of Rob's exes in this one. Rob's exes yeah. came out as gay later. So, yeah. And I like that the, the, the dynamic is so different then in the record store. But like... But Divine Joy Randolph at the same time really brings that Barry energy, that big energy, that opinionated energy. So. Oh my gosh, she does, but she makes it so much more joyful also. Like we don't hear Barry talking about the stuff he loves that much. It's more putting other people down. Sure. Whereas she mm-hmm. definitely clowns on people, but she's also really big up stuff that she likes. And that is, I love that so much. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really do like the, the new show. I was really into it when I watched it this time. And I was really yeah. interested in the romance, too. They did a little different thing with mm-hmm. that. I'm not going to spoil it. Yeah, I'm with you. I watched half the first episode. And I was like, I am not into this at all. But I for this, I was like, I'm going to do it and got into it. Yeah, also I'm sorry that I didn't do it the first time High Fidelity TV show. I am. Yeah. And yeah. so, Courtney, what drew you in when you were watching it the first time? Because obviously you were a fan back in the day then. Well, not back in the yeah. day, two years ago. 
<laughs> I was, I was, well, I was tracking it for a long time um, and I've been watching the development process and I was really curious about how they would play it because Rob is so awful. Like the, the John Cusack Rob character and the book character he is, you know, emotionally immature and women don't usually get to play that. And mm. she keeps her Rob right on that track. Like it's very mm-hmm. selfish. It's very self-centered. It's making choices that are best for her and not caring when you fuck everyone else over. And I really actually love seeing women play those characters that play against um, feminine stereotypes. I thought it was really cool. And I'm wondering, Courtney, did the music on this show live up to your expectations? The music was so good, so much more cohesive than the movie, Mm. and so Mm. nicely updated. And they also made a point, they went out of their way to feature um, Black women artists, Mm. which is appreciated. Yeah. Wasn't Questlove a music supervisor? He was, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you see that on the credits, I'm like, well, it's going to be freaking brilliant. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So get out there, guys. And like, even though there isn't a second season, but I think the first season gives you enough resolution that it's a complete story and definitely worth watching. Anyway, so let's do our double feature recommendations then. My first double feature recommendation is about a boy from 2002, also based on a Nick Hornby novel. Love this movie. I was working in theaters when it came out and saw it so many times. Hugh Grant in it and Nicholas Holt as the boy in question. And just this man child learning to mature and grow up through his relationship with an actual child who he's helping because this kid's getting bullied. And Tony Collette's in it and one of her great appearances. And just the humor of Nick Hornby is really shows up here as well. Really worth watching. Um, I recommend The Holiday from 2006 uh, for, to see Jack Black in not a hyper role. Like, I think for a while, all I thought of him was just doing, and maybe he, that's all he did, was just these, like, hyped up, like, berry roles. But in, in The Holiday, I think he's really sweet. And so I highly recommend it. All right. For my double feature, I'm picking Singles from 1992. It's a Cameron Crowe movie, and it's sort of the relationship bookend in my mind in a weird way to this, but set in the previous uh, decade of music, set in the time of grunge. So it gets into the same dysfunctional habits, young people making bad decisions, being really selfish, while excellent music plays. And Sophie mm-hmm. and I are probably both nodding because we covered this for the podcast. So in our Gen X series. Yep. So yeah, we were nice. Yeah. Yes. I feel like it's my friend now. Every movie we cover on the podcast becomes like a friend to me now. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> sweet. I love it. <laughs> so my second choice, I actually changed. I was originally going to make better off dead. My second choice, just because I love the weird absurdity of that John Cusack eighties movie. But then I decided thematically the sure thing from 1985 is a much better match Because this is another John Cusack role where he's playing a guy with unrealistic ideas about relationships who eventually comes to have more realistic ideas about relationships. He has this idea that he's going to meet this fantasy girl and have sex with her that he's never met before. And he goes on this huge road trip across the country to do so. Tim Robbins, incidentally, is in this movie in a very funny role. And like throughout the course of the movie, he's interacting with a girl played by Daphne Zuniga, who's much more of a regular person and much cooler. And um, yeah. It's a rom-com, so you figure out what happens. 
Uh, I picked next uh, Gross Point Blank from 1997. Uh, John Cusack, Mini Driver is the love interest. Um, and I mean, the premise is a, it's a hitman goes home for his 10 year high school reunion. Um, but I, I don't know. I was like going with it. I'm like I can go with this storyline. She is the town's like radio DJ, which I love. Hmm. Um, and uh, what's uh, Joan Cusack is also in it, of course, and she's utterly hilarious. It's it's a good one. I enjoy it, even with this like kind of heightened circumstances of the John Cusack character being a hitman at his high school reunion. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, I love that choice. I love that movie so much. Another one where that the soundtrack on that is impeccable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely mm-hmm. perfect. And I agree. I love Mini Driver as the town DJ, and I wish that that had yeah. been my job in 1997. I was like, that's what I'm Yeah. <laughs> my next double feature choice is Empire Records from 1995. This is a look at another record store, and it's it answers the question of what if the coolest record store in your town looked like a chain and squawked like a chain, but was not a chain, was independently owned and a chain wanted to buy it. And then hijinks ensue. Um, It is like, if you need to, if you were into the record store vibe of high fidelity, but you really need a cleanser from the emotional drama empire records. Yeah. (sighs) It's one of my faves. I love this film. So for my final choice, this is really more of a mood thing for me and like a movies I remember loving from that time period. There is one connecting point, but it's kind of vague. Um, my third choice is Ghost World from 2001 based on the Daniel Klaus graphic novel. And like just the mood of this movie works for me with high fidelity. It reminds me of the early 2000s. But the actual reason, reason, official reason I'm choosing it is because Steve Buscemi plays this like very serious record collector with a bunch of weird geeky record collector friends and they're collecting much older records like um old blues records and they're very into this and i I think it's like that record collecting culture but just a different version of it in the movie and just you should see ghost world if you haven't seen it i mean it's got an early scarlett johansson appearance but i really love it for thora birch's appearance as enid she's one of my favorite film characters (laughs) she's a very relatable adolescent character my next one is That Thing You Do from 1996, written and directed by Tom Hanks, um, about a, a band, a one-hit wonder band. And um, I chose it because, you know, High Fidelity talks about, like, what's it like to, you know, date a musician and what have you. And, well, it's these guys who have their small-town band that becomes – you know, big for a little bit and you see them recording their first album in, in uh, one of the guy's uncle's church. Cause he's got the sound equipment, which I think is fantastic. And then, uh, and then like, what's it like in the studio? And I don't know. I thought it's a fun one. I, we, we really like it in my house. We, there's a couple lines that we quote nonstop. <laughs> my final recommendation is Juliet naked, which is yes. the, 2018 adaptation of Nick Hornby's 2009 novel. 
So it's also an interesting companion piece to High Fidelity because, Mm -hmm. as we discussed earlier, it explores these man-child characters. Uh, Chris O'Dowd plays a guy who's a huge fan of this obscure artist who he's constantly trying to email and track down, and he runs an internet bulletin board dedicated to him. Um, And the artist is played by Ethan Hawke. And his girlfriend, Rose Byrne, is annoyed by all of this, which is realistic and accurate it seems like he's very one note with his obsession and i'm not going to spoil it by telling you how it ends but unlike high fidelity it's not just a realization movie it's a real adult relationship movie where things become almost untangibly complex um there's no great resolution it's very real it's very (laughs) kind of brutal Um, and ambiguous. So it's like if Rob and Laura were 10 years older than they are (laughs) and way more in the stakes are high period of life, what would have happened? Yeah. I really loved it. Yeah. We're both fans. a lot. (laughs) The Ethan Hawke of it all helps. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So, you know, thanks so much, Courtney, for coming on today. I think I, Sophia and I would probably both agree we've learned a lot from you and we really enjoyed oh, yeah. you know, having your expertise on the show. And if you enjoy hearing Courtney's expertise, definitely check out Songs in the Key of Death and make sure to follow her so you can find out about her indie rock podcast that's coming up. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Courtney E. Smith or Instagram at the Courtney E. Smith. Yeah, definitely follow her. She, like, Follow what she's doing because you're, you won't be disappointed. Read the book, loved it listen to the podcast, loved it. So follow her and invite her on your podcasts, male music nerds and male (laughs) film nerds too. If she's open to that, I don't know. So yeah. Yeah. I'm open to that. It's, I mean, I'm going to tell you what movies I'll talk about, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot from you guys too. And now I feel like we're best friends. So I'm going to need to follow you on Facebook to get your life advice. Oh my goodness. Okay. (laughs) Do it. Do it. You won't be sorry. (laughs) Courtney, thank you so much. So so, learned so much. Thank you. It was great fun. And and coming up on every rom-com, our next series is going to be the time travel and weird time stuff series. Some of the things we'll be covering include somewhere in time, about time, groundhog day, 13 going on 30 and much more. So stay tuned for that. And yeah, thanks everybody for listening and have a great day. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.